personally, I think I would refer to it as like a shit sandwich or maybe a shit panini. I mean, like it's going to start like there's a couple things that are really good, but in between those two things, it's just miles and miles of excrement. So I, I'm I'm thinking more along the lines of a fried apple shitter. A fried apple shitter. Yeah, well, that's very culinary. Well, you know, because it's fried. You know, so yeah. I mean, everything is good if you fry it. Yeah, even and the then, terrible things. Even and then because. You know, apple fritters are never as good once you get past that first bite. Yeah. By the time you swallow the first bite, you realize they've pretty much corrupted everything about the apple. True. That there could be. True. So you're, you know, getting a little bit of cinnamon and sugar. Yeah. And then by the time you're done, it's like, God, how much fat and lard was in that goddamn <laughs> shitter there? I think. So I'm going to go with that. I, and, I like and, it. Yeah. Okay. I like it. Uh, I'm also going to go with, like, to move away from food. Uh, <laughs> It it's shit sand like that's that's what we have this sand. week shit sand because while we're distracted looking at the one or two good titles we are slowly sinking into this like <laughs> chasm of of filth and muck that we don't even notice it was like oh fox catcher this is something to talk about and then we're just up to our necks in garbage and then you're like you know Ungawa, tarzan throw me a rope throw me a <laughs> To elephant drunk, you know, something. and the more we struggle against the shitty titles this week, the the worse it's gonna get. The worse it gets. Yeah, but you know what? You know what? And, and you know what else? It's like in the in Tarzan movies and places where you would see quicksand, which apparently is only in Tarzan movies, right? That it would always just kind of be in the middle of nowhere. There exactly, would be circle that you walk in, and there would be floating sand on the top yeah. that you would fall through, and then you would struggle and and sink. And that's kind of like what it's like stepping in shit. I agree. And in fact, I would call some of the movies we're going to review this week floaters. So Floaters yeah. indeed. But you know what goes great with all of that? And the silver lining here is that we still have beer. Yeah. Welcome, lords and lasses, to the kingdom of sight and sound that we like to call Digital Noise here on OneOfUs.net. This is the weekly home release review show that always looks good in blue, no matter your definition. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, and joining me today, I am really excited to make this announcement, the third new member of the Digital Noise family. You know him, you love him, you can't get him out of your dreams or into your car. Mr. Johnny Neal. Oh my God, how do I follow up with that? <laughs> my rods and cones are spinning, baby. You're going from you're going from white to gold to black to blue. Woo! Woo! Rods and cones. My rods and cones are spinning. <laughs> I, I use a Billy Ocean song to introduce you. You start talking about the parts of the eye. This has become just a wildly disconnected podcast, and I'm very happy about that because we do not have a lot of good things to say this week about the things we actually have to talk about. So let's let's prattle on for as long as we can. Yeah, because everything that we have something good to say about has already been talked to death, and yes. showered with nominations and awards. Yes, and, New Year's Evil, for example. New just Year's Evil. All the Oscars. Every year, every 365 <laughs> days, it comes back. <laughs> Make a resolution to watch it for yourself. Yes. Anyway, Johnny, welcome aboard. I'm really excited uh, to be doing a podcast, just the two of us, because we we always have such delightful and fun conversations whenever we're at parties together, and it's always it's always so much fun. And you are a hilarious, fascinating chap, and I'm glad to I'm glad you're like you're you're my you're my partner now. If you know this this weird sort of '80s cop rotation we have going on, you and I are partners. This is because we. 
both like to wear elastic waisted pants. Yeah, probably. <laughs> they look good that way. We, Is this we, the new Odd Couple, the reboot of the Odd Couple? Yeah, I think so. The okay. Odd Couple who are both wearing yoga pants for some reason. But <laughs> we're not that odd. <laughs> you're, you're building me way up. I hope the listeners are going. Oh yeah. Oh, get me stoked here. <laughs> They're going to be having that, you know, seasonal affliction disorder by the end of this podcast after listening to me. Sensational affective disorder, I like to call it. I need a sun lamp to go with this podcast. (laughs) A sun lamp to go with the podcast. I like it. Well, guys, just a reminder, you can get us uh, here on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. That's D-I-G-I NoiseCast. And you can also follow the website on Twitter at OneOfUsNet. You can like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. And if you haven't already become a subscriber, I would highly, highly recommend that you do so. Uh, we have a lot of great goodies in there at, at all levels for uh, for the subscribers. A couple of exclusive podcasts just for you guys. Uh, we're going to be throwing some more commentaries in there soon. And uh, lots of cool stuff we'll be doing during South By, some of which will make subscriber exclusive. So definitely want to jump aboard that train if you haven't already. Well, as we mentioned in the cold open, we have a lot to cover today of various levels of quality. But first... It's time to reach out to the Inner Sphere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... The Got mail. Yes, the letterbox. Thank you, Torgo. Thank you very much. You're looking... See, Torgo looks good in yoga pants. I think he's the one guy in our whole group that pulls it off, and it really bothers me. No, don't <laughs> shake it at me. Oh, uh, Torgo. Damn, Torgo twerking. It's the you most a, horrifying thing I've ever seen. You need a square knot in that drawstring sometimes, because <laughs> you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself. Yeah, I think so, too. Anyway, this first question comes from Joe Rios, who asks... what. This is possibly the weirdest question I've ever gotten on this show. On this show? On this show, yeah. In real life, I've gotten asked way weirder things. <laughs> You've probably asked weirder I've, things. I have asked weirder things. Uh, what is your favorite curse word and type of peanut butter? I gotta, I gotta tell you, I fucking go for that crunchy, <laughs> crunchy fucking Peter Pan. What was the other part of the question? Fucking crunchy Peter Pan on a on a bagel, I guess. I like that you you found a way to like homogenize the two parts of the question into one. I was sitting here trying to think of is there some sort of connection? Like if you eat enough peanut butter, does it make you curse more, or is it harder to curse because your mouth is full of peanut butter? You go with the smooth, and it's all up in the roof of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's one of those weird urban legend things, like with the crotch and the peanut butter and the dog. Oh, maybe that's what it maybe is. Maybe there's some kind of. Yeah. Some kind of weird link there. That could be it. Um, Isn't it great how iTunes is the great democratizer? We're we're having this conversation while Jack White's going double platinum. Yeah, you know, pretty just, much. We're just down the dial. Pretty much. Right and people can iTunes. listen to both. They can uh, listen both. to it simultaneously. Digitally. Us in one ear, Jack White in the other. That would be horrible. That is my favorite fucking kind of peanut butter that I could imagine. <laughs> Jack White's... <laughs> Jack White's digital noise. And digital noise here. peanut butter on Jack White bread. That's fucking great. Boom. Um, my favorite curse. There's so many to choose from. Um, I gotta go with fuck. I yeah, fuck is so. Fuck. It's it, and it's so. You know what's great about fuck is it's so pliable. It's you so can, pliable. You can like put, peanut butter. Pe- like peanut butter. Yeah. You can you can put you can put, uh, you can put fucking a cookie. You can make fucking Thai food. You can make fucking tarts. Butter. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, you no. know what? If uh, when I eat cereal, like uh, I'll have like uh, mini wheats, and I'll put a big spoon of peanut butter on the side, and it makes it into a meal. Because if I just eat cereal, like thirty minutes later, I'm hungrier than I was if I just ate the cereal. But if I put 
some fucking peanut butter, crunchy, my favorite kind. It turns it into a meal. I'm full for an hour. Yeah, that's an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's basically all day. Yeah. Um, I think specifically fuckface. I really fuck like fuckface. Face. Yeah. It's just it's just like the the alliteration and yet it's still very like curt and to the point. It's just like fuckface. I I think that I think that one's my favorite. And as far as peanut butter goes, I also like crunchy. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. It I mean, there's there's something about eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and wanting to know that you're you're eating actual peanuts and not, and not just the natural spread. shit none of that old no, foods no. oily top stuff that you gotta try and give me salt mix. give me preservatives <laughs> give me fatty fat 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 it's American it's American so give me American peanut butter fuck face yeah. see that's how it works that's I good. love this question I did not think I would like this question but this turned into much more fun than I thought it would be <laughs> Was he given a, a prompt? Did we get a halfway answer no, from him? Or no, he, no, no, no. Is he using us for his own life choices? No, see, this is the thing. is Most of these questions, like every once in a while, somebody will be like, what's your favorite type of martial arts film? Mine is. But every once in a while, you get a question like this that just comes out of the ether and is just gone before you get an explanation. It's like an, oh. it's like an alien flying over a, you know, a forest and you see the UFO and it's like, come back. I have so many questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have an iPod with a camera. That was a long simile. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> Our next question comes from my favorite person whose name I always butcher, uh, and that is Nicodem Bredlich, who asks... Yeah, that's the name. Is that in, like, with a real alphabet, or is it... No, it's, the, it's... As far as I can tell, it's a human alphabet. Okay. Um, but it says, in your long careers in the movie business, you met a lot of celebrities. Who was the nicest person, and who was the biggest douche? Interesting. Oh, the biggest douche. Have I'm going to start with that. You've met you've met some celebrities, so tell us who was the biggest douche that you've ever the met. The biggest douche was the guy that worked for Matthew McConaughey. Really? I was at the new Okay, we're in Austin. Maybe that's not a secret. We're uh, we're in Austin. <laughs> that's where we are Newton right now. Newton Boys premiere at the Paramount <laughs> Theater. Ethan Hawke is there and and by the way, Newton Boys was not exactly the runaway successful studio movie that Richard Linklater had hoped. Crazy enough. Yeah. It was not a bad movie, but anyway, it was one of the growing Matthew McConaughey element level things. So I'm at the premiere and then I'm at the at the after party. I mean these tickets were like three hundred bucks, right? And it's a premiere with Entertainment Weekly and all these other people there taking pictures and I'm and it's at Antone's. And I look over and there's Matthew McConaughey and he's surrounded by uh, his own little McConaughey posse. And so I took a, I just took a snapshot, right? Right. Now, a lot of people out there don't know who I am physically. I'm six foot four. At the time, I was about 275. I was, I'm in pretty good shape. I can hold my own. I can fucking take a punch. I can tell you that much. Why are you looking at me like you want to fight me, Johnny? I, Neil? I believe you. I'm, I'm sitting right here with you. I, no, I'm just, well, I, I just like the way you smile and nod along with that. I'm going, good, good. I'm going, out, going off I'm going off Brian's inventory of positive Johnny Neal things. <laughs> so I take a picture, and, right. again, and, and I think I was even talking to Mike Judge at the time, who mm -hmm. was the most approachable, wonderful person in the world, right? Yeah. And I take a, I just take a snapshot with my fucking camera. It's not a big seven foot lens or anything like that. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm talking, I'm just minding my own business. And this little fucking dude comes up like, <laughs> and I don't have anything against little people. You know, I, you're you no know, Randy Newman. I'm you, no you, Randy you think they've Newman. got reason to live. That's, you got plenty of reason to live until you get into my fucking orbit. 
and talk shit. This little dude comes walking up to me. Oh my god! <laughs> he comes walking up, and I mean, you know, he's like five, 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 six, and he's in a suit. Everybody's dressed, and again, this is a press event. Right. This is an after party with press out the ass of yeah. a world premiere movie, specifically and, designed and for promotion. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so this guy comes walking up to me, and he goes, "Excuse me," and he and he says it like a like that fucking bitch ant that everybody has sure sure sure. excuse me and i said yeah you know what what's up brother you know i'm in a good mood I'm yeah, in a yeah. good, i just met juliana margulies and dwight yoakam i'm fucking happy right now you know totally and uh he he said uh mr mcconaughey doesn't want you taking his picture <laughs> <laughs> and i'd be like well then you tell mr mcconaughey to come over here and tell me that <laughs> i you know what i said was i said well you know what uh, if he doesn't want his picture taken, then I don't want any pictures of him. Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> you went with the jilted girlfriend response. I, well, sort of, but at the same time, it was like, yeah, you're not all that. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know. Tell him to get his ass off the red carpet then. Exactly. <laughs> We're at fucking Anto. This is the camera gauntlet you're walking here, buddy. Who does he think he is? And And... So I said that, and then and uh, and he just kind of looked at me. I said, "I'm not going to take any more pictures. I, I don't fucking care. You know, you, you're you're you get away from me. Scatter on back to the yeah, lollipop kill. Exactly. Go go suck your boss. You know. <laughs> and <laughs> I take it back. Go suck your boss is my favorite curse now. <laughs> so so then he's like, apparently he's got some kind of superpowers because he works for Matthew McConaughey because he looks at me and I mean his head is tilted back at a 45 degree <laughs> angle looking up at me in a fucking crowded bar yeah. in a blues bar right right you know and he and he looks up at me and he goes well as long as you agree to not take any more pictures I won't have to co- I won't have to confiscate your film oh my god I would love to see him try to take your phone <laughs> It wasn't even a phone. It was a camera. This is how long ago it was. Yeah. I said, I would love to see you try to confiscate anything of mine. And he just kind of looked at me, and I just stared down at him. And then he just kind of turned around and shuffled off. Oh and it was one of those, like, I can't believe that just happened. Oh, you know? man. What a fucking dick. That it took a long hilarious. time for me to like him after that. But he kind of, I think he kind of got over himself a little bit. But I'm sure his assistant didn't. I think he's no. probably a douche working for... And, and that assistant grew up to be the Penguin. And now you know <laughs> the rest you, of the story. And now, page two. <laughs> Well, I have a kind of an interesting answer here because my nicest person and biggest douche is the same person oh. uh, in different in different contexts because I was on set in New Orleans for uh, Ender's Game, and so we were we were there and we were all very excited because obviously playing General Graf is Harrison Ford, yeah, uh, who is a hero to anyone who you know has ever self identified <laughs> as a geek. Um, and everyone. Any and everyone who likes good things. He's an icon. He's an icon and a half. You know, I mean, there's, there's, whether you're into Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Blade Runner, like, I mean, the guy's got all bases covered. Uh, so we're there and they tell us right off the bat, like, look, um, Harrison Ford is just not going to be available for interviews. And we're like, there was a possibility of that. That's fine. But we did get to watch him shooting a scene. Oh, wow. And we're sitting there and we've, you know, we're sitting behind the, uh, where what they call the video village and watching all the cameras with the director. And we've all got headphones on so we can hear what's going on. 
and we are picking up Harrison's mic really, really well. And he says things to the director during the course of filming, like, um, can we start the scene already? I've been acting for 30 minutes. <laughs> and other Jim's like, I know what the line is. I've said it 3000 times. Like just very, like, <laughs> just very, like not, not pleasant to work with. And I'm sure the filmmakers like, Jesus Christ, this guy, he's on an especially grumpy day today. So, I mean, we still were sitting there in awe. And in fact, we were laughing our asses off. But I just remember thinking like, man, if I was a director, I would think Harrison Ford is such a douchebag because it would just be a nightmare to work with. And then later that day, we had interviewed kind of the entirety of, you know, that cast is mostly kids. So we had kind of interviewed them all at once uh, in this like trailer where they, because they were filming so long, like, they get their uh, their school lessons in this trailer. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, and so we were interviewing them in there and uh, kind of talking to them all at once. And then they left and we were just kind of lingering around until they took us to the next place. And then all of a sudden, in walks Harrison Ford, just completely unannounced. He's just By in himself? there. Yeah. And uh, one of the reps comes was he in, like in costume. And it, yeah, he just he just walked in and he's like, was "Hey, he lost." No, he. <laughs> I know that was my first thought too. Is is like, wow, he must have gotten that really good strain today, and now he doesn't know where he is. Uh, but no, he walks in and he just comes up to us and he goes, "Hey, I uh, I just wanted to say thank you very much for coming, and it's it's very nice to have you here." And it was just like. He was basically talking to us as if he, you know, we were guests in his home. Wow. And he absolutely did not have to do that. Like, the the rep came in after him and was like, hey, guys, uh, we, we don't want to do an official interview. This is kind of off the record. We're like, that's fine. We get to meet Harrison Ford. Wow. And he was just being super nice to all of us. So it was just like one of those situations where it's like, there's clearly a demarcation between when Harrison Ford is working and when he's not. Uh, and when he's working, he is extremely tough to work with. But on a personal level, he is just a really nice guy who, he, like I said, he didn't have to come in at all. They had already told us that there wasn't going to be an interview. He could have just hung out in his trailer and not, you know, talk to any of us. But, like, he just comes in and says hello and is very cordial and go like, out of, out, like, over the top polite. So I, I, I was very impressed by that. So it's just, in one person is represented both the biggest douche and the nicest person I have ever met in Hollywood. So, well, and yeah, isn't it weird that, you know, just the notion of, of saying hello to you is a big deal. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I feel that way. I last week I went to the uh, the Texas Medal of Arts uh, dinner and gala mm -hmm. because my wife works for General Motors. This was a fifteen hundred dollar a plate thing. And Jesus. General Motors being the sponsors. Well, they, they serve it on gold. Those are was, expensive plates, it was, man. Uh, four Seasons filet mignon, and yeah, it was pretty cool. Was it like the last of its kind filet mignon? Yeah, Did you eat it an was. endangered species? It was. It, it, well, it, it was uh, baby back ribs made from real babies. Oh, awesome! Yeah. The Jonathan Swift meal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Now it's you know how that works. It was. It was a Johnny. Do I look like I have money? Of course, I don't know how that works. Well, I mean, it's not like it's a. The it's it goes to the fund, you know. It's oh right, like right, you're right. Participating in the in the deal, but I mean, like Jamie Fox was honored. It's the Kennedy Center Honors of Texas. Oh, okay. Where they recognize so the LBJ Center Honors. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> hey, wow. Wish I would have thought of that. That was uh, that, it. Was great. Well, one of the people that was honored was Dan Rather. Oh who wow! Is one of my lifelong heroes. I mean, just you know, fighting the good fight. He's one of the best. And here's the weird thing: he went to college with my mother for one year. Really? You know, back like in the fifties. Huh? And then my mother 
eloped with my father, and we, we here we go into that story. And you never got to be the son of Dan Rather. <laughs> I didn't even get to be the nephew. She would have rather been with your father than oh. Dan Rather. What's up, Fonz about classic news, man? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Got to get up early. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I'm, you know, we sit and and like I said, there was a Chandra, Chandra, not Chandra Rhymes, but the other one, the woman that's a doctor on whatever T-Bone Burnett was there. And I mean, it was really something. Uh, The, the, the Gatlin brothers, Jamie Foxx. It was really quite, uh, Steve Miller. It was quite an, quite a cool evening. Very, very cool. Um, but we go to sit down at the dinner, and I just said, I got to go find Dan Rather. And I'm kind of past the point of stalking celebrities, you know? <laughs> but there was no way I was going to be in the same room as Dan Rather and not just tell him, I love you, Dan Rather. <laughs> <laughs> I just really wish that there were more journalists like Dan Rather now. Sure. You know? So, I, I mean, he's given me all the bad news of my life. You know, <laughs> shuttle blows up, Dan Rather. Dan Rather. To tell me how fucked up that was. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Thanks so, for bringing some joy to our lives. He was, he was, uh, you know, he was just finishing his salad, and his wife, like, I don't know, I'm standing there waiting for that last bite to go down, you know, and then uh, his wife like taps on him and points to me, and and I said, Mister Rather, I'm sorry to interrupt your dinner, but I just would be remiss if I did not tell you how much I admire you. You've been one of my heroes my whole life. You yelled at Nixon. You went to Vietnam. You were the real deal. You still are. You still inspire. And, you know, he stood up, he, he said, what's your name? You know, and I introduced myself. He didn't go, oh, from Digital Noise. No, but he, uh, but, <laughs> but soon, he, next but, time, Johnny Neal, next time you run into Dan Rather. You know, Dan Rather, I try to take your journalistic integrity to, to my podcast when I talk shit about. This is why we talk about fucking peanut butter. Yeah, fucking peanut know, butter. Fuck and, and peanut butter. <laughs> no, Mr. Peanut Butter, do you have a problem? <laughs> that was the, <laughs> Withdraw your troops from marmalade. It's an unwinnable sandwich. So Dan Rather was quite a, a thrill, and that was just a week ago last night. So right that, was, that was quite great. Shook hands with me, you know. I told him, I said, "Yeah, my mom went to college with you. We took pictures, you know." And then uh, Jamie Foxx was there. I didn't, I didn't meet him, but he had a crowd of people around him, and he was working the room. He had no problem being, you know, Mister Celebrity. He really does have that weird tattoo on the back of his head. Yeah, he's an interesting dude. I remember I uh, met him during uh, Comic Con. They were doing roundtables for Django and Chain, and when he sat down, he was singing. Yeah. And he sang all the way through like the first two questions. He just wouldn't stop singing. <laughs> and I was like, "Did he recently suffer a head injury? Do he, we need to call someone? He likes what is attention. going on? He yeah, likes attention. Yeah, he uh, yeah he sang a little bit. <laughs> and I think that he really thinks he is Ray Charles, which uh, I, I think he did a great job in that movie. I don't think anybody could ever have been better. But if you compare a clip of of Jamie Foxx doing Ray Charles and Ray Charles, you see the difference between an impression and the real thing. Well, but at least Jamie Foxx actually played Ray Charles. I mean, there's still no explanation as to why Marlon Brando thought he was Truman Capote toward the end of his life. He never played Truman Capote. <laughs> he never did. And yet he, he started talking like this. He could have eaten Truman Capote. And, uh, you know, I wrote this I wrote this very influential book called uh, In Cold Blood. No, you didn't because you're Marlon Brando. Shut the fuck up and eat your Doritos. Put that ice bucket back on your head. <laughs> Talk to your little monkey man. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I guess there is nothing left for us to do but close the lid on the letterbox and actually dive into the reviews. Oh. Reviews. So, uh, 
so once again, everything we talk about, there is going to be an Amazon link here on the page on oneofus.net. If you click on that link and go to Amazon, even if you don't buy that item, just by getting to Amazon via that link, anything you buy benefits the site. We really do appreciate that. Please, please, please keep doing it. And we're going to start with the good stuff this week because then we're just going to dive into a mountain of garbage. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty hard uh, taper. Yeah. As they... <laughs> It's like a we'll probably end up with a taper worm. Crash. Yeah, yeah, big time because when you when you eat a fried apple shitter, <laughs> there's no telling what you're going to end up. In there's going to be worms. Colon infected by. <laughs> We're going to start this week with Foxcatcher. Now, this is of course the Bennett Miller movie about John Dupont and the uh, the tragedy that kind of encompassed his life. Um, if you haven't seen this movie or you don't know anything about it, basically the big draw here is that Steve Carell has this very sort of immersive, transformative performance as John DuPont, who was this incredibly wealthy, incredibly unstable human being uh, who got it into his head that he was going to put together the Olympic gold medal U.S. wrestling team. Yeah, and, you know, this is... Uh, we're talking founding fathers. His his property was on Valley Forge. Yes, he sold the Dupont family were the ones who developed the or developed or imported the gunpowder. They were the original Daddy Warbucks. They made money off the American Revolution. Yeah, I mean that's something, right? I mean a lot of people have made a lot of money off of other wars. We weren't even a country yet, and these this guy's family was profiting yeah. from the notion of just trying to leave. They didn't even care who won. Yeah, see know? that's the thing is their nearest competing family invested in tea and then they you know a boston situation came up they lost everything it's a whole it's a whole story <laughs> history jokes those stupid tetleys <laughs> <laughs> when you side with the red coats you're always going to be in the red um so channing tatum plays mark schultz who was this sort of wrestling prodigy a guy that that john dupont thought was going to be the anchor uh the best chance for america to bring home olympic gold well he was already a gold, gold yes, medal he was. winner yes he, he was, was a previous gold medal winner who when it starts it's the saddest let's just get that word out of the way here that yeah. movie is sad yes that movie is sad it's always cold even when it's green and sunny out the one or two scenes where it wasn't south park yeah it was still like oh they just had the cold filter on the camera yeah it's you know it's it's wide shot epic epic scenery and yet every bit of landscape is as plain as the giant nose on steve carell's face oh my god it was so and uh, by the way this is my uh i'm just gonna get this out of the way the all Alternate title to this movie could have been the fifty-year-old virgin because <laughs> that guy was one. This is what happens if you don't lose it at forty and you hold on till fifty. Yeah, suddenly wrestlers are starting to look appealing to you. There's right, something kind of see, uh, and and that's interesting. It's interesting you bring that up because I, there has been like it's been split right down the middle between critics and scholars who have kind of read into the the sort of lingering sexual nature of their relationship. The homoeroticism. Yeah. And then the jilted lover. But see, but I never personally, I never saw that. Like what I saw from this guy, uh, from Steve Carell's John DuPont character is that he is a guy with all of the uh all of the pedigree and none of the legacy. So he is a guy whose name carries a lot of weight and is basically at the forefront has any kind of uh, fame at all just because of who he is and who his family is. But he's a guy who's desperate to leave something that will set him apart from the rest of his family because he's, like I said, he's all pedigree, but he has nothing to leave behind. 
And so for me, that because of that and because of the nature of legacy, this took on much more of a like father figure type relationship. Yeah. Because I kind of saw Channing Tatum not just as a way for him to win Olympic gold and establish himself that way, but sort of in the more genealogical sense of legacy that he's the son that, you know, he was never going to have, because as you said, he's clearly somebody who isn't going to be successful in love. So he's somebody who's not probably going to have a son. So for me, their relationship was much more Mark Schultz, who's closest thing that he has to a father is his older brother. And there's a weird competitive nature between the two of them. So when John DuPont comes into his life, it's much more, I guess, of the, of the father figure that he never had. And I think that's kind of what complements the two things. So, like, those scenes... That, and I can understand completely how they can be read as homoerotic. Like, I get that entirely. But for me, it was much more about um, the the father figure and the, the sort of fictive son element than it was anything sexual. Well, I got to tell you, uh, this is a movie that makes you go to Wikipedia about halfway through. You're going, what the hell? Yeah. Now, this is... I remember when this happened, and I remember thinking how bizarre it was that this guy, who was obviously loaded beyond what I even knew loaded people were, you know, like yeah. when you're a kid, you oh, we should rich. Sorry, we should we should mention that we're probably going to spoil the ending. It's a real thing that really happened. You can look it up, but just in case you're spoiler-phobic, we're probably going to spoil it. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Actually, though, <laughs> that said, mm-hmm. it was the opposite of how I thought it was going to end. I thought it was going to be the other brother. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you, know you would mean? think. So, but that that's the weird thing about it is yeah. is that um it it you, you think that you're on this weird uh homoerotic trek with this older man younger man yeah uh who is looking at uh, not only is he looking at him as a kind of a father figure but he's also kind of looking at him as a savior yes because very much it so. begins with him getting paid twenty dollars in check form from an elementary school where he's going in and it's so cold everything is so cold in this movie yeah he goes in and he's wearing his gold medal and there's about 30 elementary school kids sitting in the audience looking at him like I'm getting out of class by coming to see you. It cost me 10 cents or something. You know? yeah, yeah. I remember those kind of weird assemblies like that. And he's just talking about how the metal means everything to him and how it's all freedom and, and you know, everything about America. And then he goes to get paid and the secretary uh, says his, uh, what was it? Charles, not Charles Schultz. It was uh, Mark, Mark. But it was Mark, but she asked if he was his brother. Like, oh, he, David. David. David is his brother, yeah, played fill, by Mark Ruffalo. You yeah. filled in, uh, and, and you're David. Is it Dave or David? And he says, I'm, I'm Mark. I got gold medal too. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like even yeah, yeah. then, he's just not there. He is, he's not there. And he's like filling in on his brother's dime, even. Sure. And his brother has a job. You know, he's, he's a wrestling coach, probably a history teacher, as they all are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's got a wife, he's got kids, he's Mark Ruffalo, he's got his shit together, you know? Yeah. Um, then this guy comes from out of nowhere and says, I want you to be part of my team, I have a vision, and he just, man, you know the easiest way to control somebody? Find somebody you can control. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the best way, and, and that's what he did. Now... Per Google, here's the thing where I kind of go, the movie is very uh, ambiguous uh, in, in what the the lesson we learn here is. Mm-hmm. Because this guy, DuPont, did have a bit of a legacy. He wrote several books on North American birds. He had a doctorate. Um, you know, he, he was a lot more accomplished 
along the way. He, the, the accolades that he got in the awards ceremony when they snorted Coke the whole way in the helicopter. Yeah. What a world to get sucked up into, you right. know, from a, being an extended high school student, you know, to suddenly you're doing Coke over D.C. in a helicopter with a guy. Yeah, but who hasn't done that? <laughs> I did that yesterday. You know who hasn't done that? Matthew McConaughey's assistant. (laughs) Fuck that guy. (laughs) So, uh, to me, I I think, to me, that's the ultimate part of the movie that I didn't like, is that I didn't quite feel like, I felt like they they gave me enough information to make up my own mind as to what was going on, Mm -hmm. but I think that they didn't give me enough information. I mean, like at the end, it's like, uh, oh, we've got a new security. Well, when you read it into Google, it turns out that that security guard that he was with was also his drug supplier. And, you know, if you know anybody that's in security, they're always on a sales pitch that you need to be more careful. Yeah, yeah. You know, so they they didn't really sell how much of a weird buildup he had had. He had started showing signs of kind of losing his shit. And then at the end, when his defense was temporary insanity because he was under the impression that this guy was had a, a plot against him. I don't know how much of that. I, I mean, he, he died in prison mm-hmm. for what that's worth. I mean, at least we got that much of a happy ending that a rich guy didn't walk. Yeah. You know? I mean, Which is was, actually surprising considering how big, rich this family oh is. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think they could have even built a special prison for him. Yeah. You know? that, that like was Magneto? Yeah. Just exactly. all be made of plastic and, and like, self-actualization? <laughs> underneath <laughs> underneath the, uh, the White House. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's where you're going to do it. If you want to keep somebody, you know. Probably, know, yeah. That's, speaking of segues, uh, the... <laughs> So I I gotta say this movie haunted me the night that I had uh, that I watched this movie I had a dream where I was a, a kid and I know how dreams are I was a kid and all of my friends were being lured away from me by an old gay guy I got nothing against gay people don't get me wrong but you know how symbolism can be sure sure and I'm trying to scream to them. Stay away. <laughs> Stay away from that guy. And then in my dream, I said, the only way I can do this is to be politically incorrect. And I started screaming, he's a homo. He's a homo. <laughs> and my wife woke me up and said, you're screaming, he's a homo. <laughs> so based on that alone, Steve Carell was robbed. <laughs> Back to you, Brian. Oh my God, that is too good. You know, I, and it's funny because I didn't even imagine that dream playing out in your head like Foxcatcher. I dreamed, I, I was imagining it playing out like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and that weird child abductor guy with like, hey, I've got all the candy, get into the game. Like, like, big long nose. And then I just imagine Dick Van Dyke coming out and being like, he's a homo. <laughs> It's a, very, a homo. very different movie, the, but yeah. but still, yeah. So I I think this is a movie that is um it's a, it's a masterclass in performances. Oh my god, yes. Uh, even the bleakest. I mean, the whole movie is bleak, but even the even the bleak elements are very well photographed. It's a very compelling story. Bennett Miller is really good at finding the most interesting. Um, the most interesting aspects of sports stories. I mean, it's the same way with Moneyball when he specifically looked at, you know, the numbers that are involved in putting a team together and, and getting on base, like really breaking it down to the nitty gritty. And, and I think this is another, I just want to see him make movies like this that really tackle the, the darker and or kind of lesser known side of sports. I think he's really good at it. And I also want to say that I think Channing Tatum was robbed 
because I think Channing Tatum's performance in this movie is every bit as strong as Mark Ruffalo's performance. Oh, definitely. And yet Ruffalo's the one that ends up with the best supporting. Steve Carell ends up for best actor, but but nothing for Channing Tatum. And I think this was probably his best performance to date. So, um, but yeah, this is this is a pretty incredible movie. Uh, the, the story, the performances, everything about it is really good. I mean, the ending is going to leave you asking a lot of questions, but for it's going to leave you sad, and it's going to leave you sad. <laughs> There's just no getting around yeah. how affecting this movie is. Totally, you just, you just. Uh, There's a couple of moments of of just outburst that my wife literally yelped. You know, wow. just, it was a surprise because it's so. Even the wrestling is so calm. You know, and the, it is, yeah. And the, the Mark Ruffalo and and uh, Channing Tatum when they meet for the first time, and they go through this motion where they're kind of warming each other up, yeah, literally physically warming up each other's muscles in a kind of a choreographed wrestling. Yeah, it was really beautiful. You know, yeah. it was just like it, it was, was like a dance. It made me yeah. think of like the Bears and Grizzly Man when they're having that big fight. You know, yeah. and, and he's <laughs> just and he's watching just fascinated you know i mean it was it was a dance and it was and there was a little bit of competition at the same time yeah. as there was well this is what we do yeah. you know i mean this is the nature of our relationship is this if, if bears could have cauliflower ears that's what that scene would have looked like if bears could be magic mike three. Oh, i would watch the hell out of that <laughs> are you kidding me well, there probably are a bunch of bears isn't there. the male strip club here in austin called la bear la bear there you go there you go there's there's the connection there's some major Oh yeah. <laughs> I highly recommend this movie. I uh I also recommend doing a little googling afterwards to connect the dots and making up your own mind. Totally. Um but it's pretty fascinating. It's it's a pretty fascinating movie. I think that perhaps uh DuPont was untreated autism. You know, something, something, some, something really something, severe. Something yeah. really severe. Yeah. That's uh that's my take. And this Blu-ray uh, does have a few special features on here. There's some deleted scenes, and there's a featurette called The Story of Foxcatcher. But, you know, actually kind of surprised at how few, I mean, considering how much acclaim this movie got, you know, it's considered one of the best films of the year, and, and yet, you know, we don't have a lot in the way of special features, so maybe there will be some kind of uh, director's cut or extended edition later on i will tell you that um the story of foxcatcher is an excellent little feature oh fantastic yeah and uh you will be amazed at what a good job they did recreating those characters as uh you know the actors recreating i mean just the the mark ruffalo's hairline things like that wow that you just like those were his real glasses the wife gave him the glasses oh wow yeah i mean it was just stuff like that that you just go man everything about this movie is this frozen passion you know it yeah. was it was really something awesome well moving on from there to another uh oscar winning movie uh one that's uh this is definitely going to be my pick of the week just because this movie is so phenomenal and that is whiplash uh which if you still haven't had a chance to see i, I can't recommend this any higher this is this is a movie that you know when you talk about passion yeah you, <laughs> there is there is no greater passion i feel than you know somebody who puts everything they have into what they love, into their art form, even when somebody is screaming in their ear that they should stop because they suck and they're awful. Like, it is like, oh, I, I kind of want J.K. Simmons, whenever I'm writing a review or putting a podcast together, just be standing over here going, you fucking suck. You should just stop. I hate you. And I like, can, I can all right, cool. Let's do it. I can do that. Yay, I Johnny Neal. I can, uh, yeah, 
that. Johnny Neal has been contracted to be my J.K. Simmons for the duration of Digital That's right, Noise. right, you goddamn pussy. Yes, awesome. Is that, wait, is that a single tear running down your face? No, it's oh. two. It's two. Um, so in this film, Miles Teller plays... Yeah, that's uh, not my tempo, Brian. That's not my... Not my tempo. Not my tempo. <laughs> too slow or too fast? Was I too slow or too fast? Tell me, goddammit. <laughs> you fucking pussy. You fucking pussy. Uh, so he plays... Fucking peanut He plays a young pussy. drummer who um, enters a, a music conservatory, and to say this place is competitive is like not even scratching the surface. This is like the agogi for musicians. That's what this this is a Spartan agogi for musicians and the uh the general at the head of it is JK Simmons uh playing a guy named Fletcher. Now Fletcher's Fletcher's uh teaching methods are a little bit uh non-conventional in that he basically he he has this story that he tells about uh is it is it Bird Parker? Yeah, Charlie, Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker. Uh, where he says that someone threw a symbol at, at Charlie Parker's head once when he wasn't playing well. He didn't, you know, the, this person who was instructing him went straight for throwing something at him as opposed to giving him constructive criticism or anything like that. And he always felt that if that person didn't throw a symbol at, at uh, Charlie Parker's head, there would be no Charlie Parker. So he's kind of adopted this, like, tough, 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 tough love approach to kind of fostering musicians. And if you don't have it, he's going to fucking tell you, and he's going to tell you to get the hell out. And so what this movie is really about is sort of this one-on-one battle between Miles Teller, who knows he's good enough, uh, and puts everything into, and I mean everything, into his drumming, and J.K. Simmons, who... You know, throughout the course of the film, believes in him, doesn't believe in him, has personal beef with him. Like, you know, the whole movie is really just about the relationship between these two people and whether it does foster um, the best out of Miles Teller's character or whether it's detrimental to him. And that's the question that you're going to be asking the whole movie. And in the, in the course of that, we get to hear some really incredible jazz drumming. And uh, it's just it's it's amazing to me how much tension they're able to create with so slight a premise. To me, this movie is the perfect counterpoint to Foxcatcher because it's almost mm-hmm. the same kind of a thing. Sure. Whereas DuPont wanted to be the hero, you know, Fletcher mm-hmm. is the hero. He is his idol. Just thinking that he recognizes his silhouette on the other side of the glass door <laughs> at the beginning of the movie, yeah. just thinking maybe that's him makes him want to play better. He makes he is a very inspiring and manipulative and evil and vindictive and brilliant teacher. Yeah. Um, I have, it, it, it hit a lot of notes with me as far as, <laughs> It hit a lot of notes with me. Um, I was in the army for seven years, and it's funny. By the end of basic training, everybody has like this kind of a non-gay crush on their drill sergeant, who has just made them feel like shit about themselves. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a form of Stockholm syndrome, almost. Yeah, 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 big time. And what's really funny about this to me is how obsessed he is as a as a Miles Teller. For, for one, let's just say that Miles Teller is the face of the future of film. I think yeah. he's one of the best actors out there. Not just one of the best young actors, but oh my God, is he good. He is so appealing and so just, he just becomes who who he is. He turns that part into him. Yeah, um, absolutely. And then J.K. Simmons is, of course, just brilliant. Uh, once again, we can thank HBO for bringing a, a New York actor to the attention of the rest of the world. I, I've been waiting so long for J.K. Simmons to really get the acclaim that he deserves. 
He's so good in everything. everything. Everything he's ever been in. And I was I was beyond elated to see him win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor because he you know, I think Drill Sergeant is exactly the right the right archetype to kind of assign to him for this movie. I mean, he is the early Ermy of, of, of drum of, of musician of, uh, of conductors and just watching him. One of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is he's like, somebody in here is flat. Tell me who you are right now. And nobody speaks up. So he just kind of goes through and he's like, okay, it's the trombones. Okay. It's you. And then he singles out this one kid and just starts like talking about how fat he is. And it's like, you're you're flat. You flat. You didn't tell me. You were you thinking about a happy meal instead of what you're supposed to be fucking doing? Get the fuck out of my class! And then as the kid is leaving and crying, he turns to this other trombone kid and goes, "Oh, by the way, it was you that was flat." But uh, <laughs> but he didn't know. But he didn't and that's know. Just as he bad. didn't know whether he was flat, and that's just as bad. And I'm just like, holy fuck! What a bastard! And the, what a bastard! Everybody jumps to attention when he walks in the room, yes. which is a very military thing. You know? Absolutely. And then the the fact that. Nobody looks at the guy when when he's yelling at, at Miles Teller when he's going off. You know that everybody in there has gotten some dose of that, and they're all thinking at that moment, "Thank God it's not me oh, right God, now." Thank God, thank it's, God not it's not me right now. Oh, the new guy, oh, the squeaker, the we squeaker. squeaker, we got a squeaker. <laughs> and then he brings in. Uh, just, he's just fucking mean. He's just mean. He's so mean. He's inspiring and he's brilliant and he gets the best. And I don't really know if you consider him to be a teacher at this point, because, like, I mean, are they going to other classes during the day? I, it's kind of a, it's such an insular world. And and here's the funny thing about, uh, and and I hate to keep going back to Foxcatcher about this, but they're so paralleled in so many ways of the how much do you. How much should you look up to the person who is teaching you? Mm-hmm. And I have a tendency to just kind of fall in love with my teachers, mm-hmm. you know, like if they're good. Yeah. A- and um, the flip side of that is I'm shattered when they don't like if I'm taking a drawing class and I'm going, I know that I'm better than these people in this class. And then I'm being objective about that. It's one of the things that I'm, I'm good at. And I'm going, I know that I'm better because I've looked around at everybody else. But there's somebody who's got a new approach to something. And they're not very good, but they've got a spark of freshness. Whereas I'm going for, for, uh, for, for perfect, you mm-hmm. know. They've got a spark of, of, of a live new approach to things. And the teacher will be, cause they've seen a thousand people that are good, you know, but then to see somebody who like hits the paper, like it's a percussion instrument, you know, yeah. and, and I, and I'm just, and they're going, Oh, look at this. Look what Bob did. And I'm going, <gasps> don't you know, this is all I can do. It's so important that you tell me I'm great. Validate me, validate me. And that's, <laughs> and it's you know what there's 10 people in that room and nobody outside of that room gives a shit yeah. and the other nine people don't give a shit either yeah, yeah. you know but i'm the one who's going oh it's so important that you tell me how great i am <laughs> and when miles teller goes to dinner with his dad and his family and his his cousins are talking about playing football and he's just like it's a division three school this is division three uh, and he's yeah. like being a dick yeah, yeah and that's what was so great was you he was allowed to be a dick in the movie like you know it it was okay that that character was a young stupid dick yeah and the way he broke up with his girlfriend a little spoiler was like (laughs) the ultimate you know again maybe it was a little bit autistic a kind of an obsessive thing going on there and uh, but it's just all in service of this mad desire to please jk simmons like jk simmons in this movie is like 
if Mr. Holland was Lex Luthor, like <laughs> he's there to teach and he's there to get the best out of students, but he's also a megalomaniacal psychopath. Like he's out of his mind. And you know, it, it really does become a war between these two. And it's like, when it, when it gets to that level of confrontation, when it gets to that level of animosity, simmering underneath that is that J.K. Simmons still wants him to play well. He yeah. still wants, like, it's just, it's so complicated. And there's a scene at the end of the movie that, like, you're just going to be on the edge of your seat. And it's, it's just one guy conducting and one guy drumming. And I think that's the brilliance of this movie is these little moments that they're able to elicit such tension out of something as simple as somebody playing the drums. And it's phenomenal to me, and I couldn't stop watching it. And I love all of the dialogue that J.K. Simmons has. It's like, it's, it, you know, it's like Mammoth with Tourette's. Like, oh, that yeah. guy curses like nobody I've ever heard. And it's it's just phenomenal. I love this movie. I loved the experience of watching it. Yeah. I, I You know, I saw it on the big screen when it first came out. And as soon as it was available on DVD, I watched it again. It was just a... One of the best I've seen all year. It's and again, it, it goes back to obsession, you know, and it, and it's ego. There's so much more ego in this movie mm-hmm. because Miles Teller is just brimming with ego, yeah, just brimming with it. And he's got a hero who's Buddy Rich, and Buddy Rich was not like people don't. He was the drummer's drummer. But he's not the guy that other jazz musicians are going to go, oh, yeah, Buddy Rich, he's the best. Because he was the guy that would overpower the saxophone and overpower the trombone, mm-hmm. you know. But if you're into drumming, then he's the guy who, yeah. you know, how often does the, the drummer just take over the whole show? Yeah. So, I mean, just knowing that. And then there's also a little compare and contrast the first orchestra leader when when uh, the J.K. Simmons pulls him out of his class, that guy walks in and he's like Mister Rogers, you know. He's like, "Good morning, class." They're all, I said, "Good morning," you know. They're all, <laughs> they're all happy when J.K. Simmons is like, "Meet me there at six a.m. Be sharp," you know. And, and it's like it doesn't even start till nine. Yeah, and, and the the shit and it's he, not even in the key of B sharp, you uh, jackass. Oh, hey, oh, hey, a lot of good year for percussion yeah good year for percussion. it was a good year for percussion <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it i i love this movie i i can't recommend it highly enough absolutely and the uh the blu-ray here does come with uh i really love that jk simmons is on the commentary uh for this movie i think that's great uh there's also a featurette called an evening at the toronto film fest with miles teller jk simmons and Damien Chazelle, who is the writer-director. Uh, and then there is also a documentary called Timekeepers. Uh, there's an original short film. Uh, apparently, this was Whiplash started as a short film. And that's how they raised money for it. And that's Yeah, that's how they, that's how they got but the money to Miles make the feature. It didn't have Miles Teller, but it had J.K. Simmons in it. That's, yes, that is correct. Uh, there's some deleted scenes with commentary and, of course, the trailer. So, I mean, there's, there's a goodly amount of extras here on, on this Blu-ray. And I just... Like I said, I, I can't recommend this movie any higher. It is definitely like in incontrovertibly one of the best movies of 2014, and I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And I'm not going to put this out as a spoiler, but I'm going to say this is one of those rare movies where everybody wins. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like, it, it, everybody it, it, and nobody wins. It's so like. <laughs> It's it's a very rare situation, but uh, yeah, no, you're right. It's, it, it just it's like he learns the lessons he needs to learn, but he also goes past them. Yep. You know, if if anybody 
isn't the winner, it would be Paul Reiser. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's been the case for a while yeah, now. I, mean, I, I don't actually. He's kind of in a he's kind of in a whole new level of winning lately. I, I think I think that is still just residual. Uh, he's shaking off the bad mojo that he earned. By being such an asshole in Aliens, I think so too. Yeah, I think that's yeah. that's really what he's working he's, he's working to undo. <laughs> anyway, speaking of things that are musical, like Whiplash, let's talk about some musicals. Mew, hello, hey, the curtain comes up and we're all here. And I got my shoes shined. And I'm gonna do some dancing now. <laughs> and here I go. Yeah, we're terrible at this, but we're the- not. <laughs> But people who aren't terrible at making musicals are the people that made movies like The Bandwagon, Calamity Jane, Kiss Me Kate, and Singing in the Rain, which is exactly the four movies that fall into this Blu-ray collection from Warner Brothers. Now, What a convenient thing. You just pulled that off the top of your head. Right? And then there they were. There they were, just right in front of me, in my mind computer. You know what? Um, That is my tempo. That is my tempo. <laughs> I just want you to know. Get on my tempo. I think, you know what, my new fa- I know I'm going to change this like five times. I have a new favorite curse, and that curse is, get on my tempo, cunts. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's probably going to be the best one. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> movies where they don't use the word cunt would be classic musicals, uh, like uh, The Bandwagon, Calamity Jane, Kiss Me Kate, and Sing in the Rain. Well, not on the, the blooper reel. Yeah, maybe. Gene <laughs> Kelly may have called everyone cunts. That fucking Ethel Merman. <laughs> <laughs> See you next Tuesday, You'll Ethel. be swell. You'll be great. <laughs> except that you're all a bunch of cunts. Um, yeah. So Singing in the Rain already has a really stellar standalone Blu-ray release uh, that just came out within the last couple of years. But if you don't already own it, this is a cool set to pick up because um, I want to, I'm going to talk about Bandwagon, which is an interesting musical because it has a sort of... Um, meta edge to it because uh, Gene Kelly is playing a character who's no, who was a song no, and dance Fred man. Astaire. I'm sorry, you're right. Fred Astaire plays a character who was a song and dance man who was really popular who has kind of been left by the wayside. Kind of. Well, he's 54 in yeah, this movie. Yeah, which and, is kind of shocking. Yeah, I mean his career is 30 years before that. I mean had been going on for 30 years, but he was 54 in this movie. That just is kind of amazing to me. And well, you know, let's just get some musical stuff. Gene Kelly is the guy who made it look so hard. He was the athlete <laughs> of of you know. I mean everything he did was like a, a super athletic performance. And you're just in awe. Fred Astaire was the graceful ballet dancer who right. made it look so easy. He just made it look like if you weighed 12 pounds, you could just tap dance over a shoe shine. Yeah. Anything in the world. Or a cartoon mouse. Or a car- That yeah. was Gene Kelly again. Damn it. I'm never going to get that. you straight. major in theater? Aren't you like a theater? I minored in theater. Thank you very much. <laughs> I have an excuse for being this stupid is that I minored in theater. I minored in theater. <laughs> I am only a minor theater kid. <laughs> So Fred Astaire plays Tony Hunter, who's a guy, like I said, who's, who was really popular. His movies haven't been drawing the crowds that they used to. In fact, the early part of the movie, he's on a train, and he's listening to two people talk about how, like, I wouldn't go see a picture with him anymore. And he's like, yeah, that guy's all washed up. And the two people he's talking to don't realize until halfway through the conversation that he is actually the person they're talking about. They're having an auction for his top hat and his cane. And they can't sell it for two bits. <laughs> Can't even get two bits. Oh my god, I'd so bid on that. (laughs) (laughs) 
So he basically has this idea that they're going to do this big show. Uh, you know, they're going to they're going to have this big comeback. Him and he's got these two writers that he always works with, and they're they've put together a new show for him, and they're going to it's going to be the big comeback. Unfortunately, doesn't work out quite the way they they want it to. So they go on the road with this weird variety show that really like is the part of the movie that kind of lost me a little bit because they're going from town to town doing these different numbers, and one of them is like the three of them are. Babies? Oh yeah, that's gross. And it's really I hate weird. infantilism. Yeah. Okay, well you're missing the point here. I'm missing you the point the, here. You missed something here. What Not the missing? point, but the plot. Yeah. The theater the the they want to do this lighthearted musical. Right. That they're good at. Nanette Fabre and Bert Converse some Bert something. Part of the meta thing was that that guy complains about his his hips and his knees and all that. And right. That was a true thing about him. He was always a, a hypochondriac. Huh. Of, of but anyway, whatever. So they're all old friends, and they're gonna launch a musical that is gonna be a lighthearted, fun musical. But the only way they can get the thing done is it with by this one producer, actor, director played by Jack Buchanan. Jack Buchanan. Yes. Who was like the classic model of what you picture and he wants to do faust he wants to do faust yeah so which is its own meta thing in that they kind of sell their soul to him to get this show done uh and so it bombs in previews yes so they've got a couple of weeks fred astaire sells his art collection which is full of degas and van gogh's and all these and it's like why didn't you start with that why did you stop with (laughs) why did you start with top hats and gloves you really need right. money. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, well, I don't need this hat anymore. Maybe. So. I mean, that was a kind of a st- not only th- that, but he carries it around with him and decorates his hotel rooms <laughs> yeah, with, with his priceless art collection. <laughs> Just stuffs it in the suitcase. <laughs> yeah, you know. And then, uh, so, uh, and what a weird Ava Gardner cameo at the beginning. Yeah. Just like, um, oh, Ava Gardner playing Ava Gardner. <laughs> She was gone. Then she's gone. Sure, why not? There, that was weird. But so then they go. Well, we're going to do the show the way we want to do it, right, kids? And so they all launch in. And so every time they play another uh, show on their way back to New York, they're they're rebuilding the show, and Mm -hmm. so they're doing it number by number. So it leads to no connection between any of these song and dance numbers. They just keep showing one. It'll show one, and then it'll be like Tuesday, and then they're the babies, and then it's like Wednesday. No, no it's Tuesday. <laughs> and they're putting this show together, and then they perform it in New York, and it's a no. big happy ending. Actually, had a very touching final scene. I like the final scene a lot, and I actually like the the show that they put on at the end of of the movie. The the gang or the the detective. Yeah, because I tell you what, I guarantee you, watching that, I was like. This is exactly the inspiration for Michael Jackson's Smooth Criminal video. Like, if you watch, I'm serious. Like, when you watch those guys walk in, the first thing Fred Astaire does is pull his his oh, fedora yeah, down yeah, over his yeah. face and start dancing and then like fighting at the same time with the other gangsters. I'm like, this is where the Smooth Criminal video came from, and it's amazing to watch. The the number that they did there was Sid Charisse, by the way. Sid Charisse, who was also in Singing in the Rain, who was also from Texas. Hey. And, um, had she was just stunningly beautiful. Yes. Uh, didn't do her own singing in this, by the way. That wasn't her <gasps> <voice>. scandal. <gasps> scandal from 1953. <laughs> we should probably invest. Oh, she's dead. So why would we she invest? She died. Yeah. Um, so the the play within the play within the movie was called Girl Hunt: A Murder Mystery in Jazz. 
Which, if I was a jazz musician, I would certainly call myself. Every album would be a murder mystery in jazz. A murder mystery. And that in was, jazz. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, so that was the the miracle of Fred Astaire dancing and everything in silence while he did his own voiceover while it was a live performance. That was one of the magic of Hollywood. Yeah, meeting uh, Broadway. But that was a brilliant, brilliant uh, piece. It, it went on for a long time, and the whole movie was just kind of a pastiche of of different. Theatrical. I feel like I would have liked elements. it better if the whole movie was just Girl Hunt, yeah. a murder mystery in jazz. You know, like yeah. I, I feel like I could have watched a whole movie of that. But and obviously, we don't need to sell you guys on Singing in the Rain. This is oh one of the God. greatest films ever made, ever. Musical ever. or not, it's musical one of the or greatest not. films ever. So I'm gonna I'm gonna let Johnny Neal talk about. Uh, was it Calamity Jane? Was the other one? Calamity Jane. Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Doris Day, who. You know, this is something sad is how many of these these guys are kind of largely forgotten beyond like Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire, you'll remember from The Year Without a Santa Claus, you know, or some Rankin Bass kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Like there's so many of these people. I would love to meet the person who only knows Fred Astaire from The Year Without a Santa Claus. I bet that there's a lot of us out there. A lot of them out there. I grew up in a home of musicals are on. Time to watch the musicals. (laughs) Fair enough. enough. Uh, Calamity Jane has Doris Day. And Doris Day is, you know, she... It's kind of hard to to overestimate Doris Day. You know what I mean? Like, she had a beautiful voice. She was a very lovely woman, not like uh, Lauren Bacall type beautiful, but but a very pretty woman who could have been a, a big jazz singer, but instead became a, thea- a theater singer. And, you know, for some reason, that kind of stuff never seems to go both ways. You have to choose one or the other. You have to choose theater or you have to choose concert halls. And uh, she chose the concert halls. She's a great singer, and she's got a great energy. And this she plays uh, Calamity Jane, Jane Cannery, uh, if, for all you Deadwood fans. who <laughs> They never called her Calamity Jane in uh, Deadwood, but that was the character. So her co-star was Howard Keel, who you may remember, if you're part of my circle of friends, <laughs> <laughs> the big star of, uh, well, of Oklahoma oh, okay. and, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh, those are two of the big ones. Yeah. 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 He was he never uh, really did anything but movie musicals and Broadway musicals. and I mean, that I know of. I'm sure mm-hmm. he, he, you know, probably did a couple of murders he wrote or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> who didn't, though? <laughs> exactly. You know? That was kind of what that show was all about. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Calamity Jane. It's 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 a completely fictional version of the fighting and a feuding of the totally adorable Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane's romance. Yeah. Um, but this movie is notable in that it produced an Oscar-winning single, uh, "Once I Had a Secret Love" or just "Secret Love," which is uh, one of Doris Day's theme song. You know signature songs mm-hmm. uh beautiful song beautiful uh just the the soundtrack is great fun it's a very fun movie and it uh ha- it was one of those musicals that left the studio filmed outside oh wow you know so that's something funny about how uh bandwagon the sets that were not part of the stage looked just as cheesy as 
The hotel room scenes and everything looked just as fake and stage bound as the stuff that was the stage show within the movie. Huh? I, I thought was funny. So uh, this one, uh, Calamity Jane, they actually left the studio and filmed stuff outside because it was a big western. I mean, it really is like the G-rated uh, Deadwood for all the G-rated know. Deadwood. The G-rated Deadwood with a happy ending. Oh, a whole not you know not like well, Deadwood. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> but a whole different kind of happy ending. Than and, what you're thinking I would probably mean by saying that term. And then the fourth movie in the set is Kiss Me Kate, which is sort of the uh, it's sort of a meta take on uh, The Taming of the Shrew, because in the movie uh, you have these two actors who aren't getting along who are forced to do a stage production of Taming of the Shrew, oh so you can God, see how... The snake is eating its tail. I know, it's crazy. Well, that's the, the funny thing about this box, and that's where Calamity Jane doesn't quite fit in, is that most of these are musicals about musicals. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Which uh, huh. is one of those you'd think that that would be the. They just couldn't find a fourth. They couldn't find a fourth. They one. couldn't find a fourth movie that Warner Brothers owned. Ah, I bet you that yeah. that would fit into that category. Yeah, and I guess releasing three movies is just passe. That's not a full box set. Well, I also think that you probably sell a whole lot more when you put Singing in the Rain in there, and then you're just like, okay, what else can we fit in? Yeah, you know, let's just that box set is going to be the way to go. And these all look and sound great, and there are there are special features on every single one which was actually pretty impressive to me because a lot of times when you get these sort of box set deals they'll just you know throw the movies in there i was actually afraid that the special features that were on the singing in a raid uh, singing in a raid singing in the rain <laughs> that was the the british based uh, world war Two. i was gonna say uh, it's the indonesian martial arts musical called <laughs> singing in the raid which i would see in a heartbeat but, you know, I was afraid that the special features that were on Singing in the Rain, the standalone Blu-ray, would not be on here, but they are, thankfully. Oh, score. And then there are special features on every... There's a there, uh, Bandwagon has a commentary by Liza Minnelli, which that is kind of interesting. Vincent Minnelli was her dad. Yeah, so yeah. So he was the director. So, you so know... that would make sense. It, it, no, it totally makes sense. It's just, you know, I... I mean, as, as much as a commentary by Liza Minnelli could Can be possibly make sense. Yeah, yeah. Make sense. Absolutely. But if you want to see a weird Indonesian musical, um, I would say the... the uh, that one with Ryan Gosling that just came out a couple of years ago. The, oh, uh, Only God Forgives. Only God Forgives. That's pretty much <laughs> the weirdest Indonesian musical. Somebody just it's forgot to tie. put music in it. Well, no, they're at all those karaoke oh, scenes. Oh, you're right. Remember? That oh, movie was God. insane. It's I love that movie. It's a musical whose songs are all sung by like weirdo <laughs> gangsters and prostitutes. And yeah. police captains. Yes, yes. And they're all in all. I, I love that movie. So we're going to transition from musicals to something that's almost exactly like a musical, Feliz Satiricon. It's like a musical if you liked to eat glass. Yeah. Before you cried. Yeah. Oh my god, this Look, movie. This is the Criterion release of the week, and one thing that I will always respect about Criterion is that they find the merit and the importance in films that aren't necessarily my cup of tea. They release a lot of films that I do love, but you know, it's not just genre crowd pleasing stuff. I mean they, they understand that film as a history there are certain benchmarks that have to be given their proper due that being said i fucking hate fellini <laughs> i fucking hate I fellini and i hate pasolini i just like this this very sort of um uh, i don't know like like very much style over substance like art for the sake of look what i can do type of italian uh i guess what they call it like it's not really neo realism it's it cuz that was that was actually focused on uh, telling a story that was realistic. This yeah. is far more fantastical approach to filmmaking that is very sexually liberated and very much about 
imagery and iconography and not necessarily, and here's my biggest problem, about any sort of narrative continuity. <laughs> this, okay, so Satyricon is Fellini adapting, uh, ad- adapting a play that was written by uh, a, a Gaius Petronius. I mean, this is, you want to talk... Dickus Dickus? Yes. Was it written by Biggest Dickus? It, it may have been. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only laugh you're going to get out of Fellini's satirica. Yes, yes, that is that is the is most if laughter. you make fun of it the whole time. It's it's a Manipian satire, which, you know, the Manipian word... Manipian satire. Yeah, the word satiricon and the word satyr are obviously at the heart of where we get the word satire. The funny thing is, I couldn't tell for the life of me in the course of this movie what was being satirized at all. A lot of things were being sodomized. I couldn't see a lot of things being satirized. What was being satirized was my free time. (laughs) He was laughing at it in my face. Yes. (laughs) And and, and I gotta agree with you. First, you're killing me here. You're cracking me up. because (laughs) More than this movie ever will. I feel like we're having, in honor of Leonard Nimoy, we're having our own Vulcan mind meld going on here. (laughs) Because you're you're taking the words right out of my medulla. <laughs> I loved uh, La Dolce Vita, so I can't okay. say that Fellini is all bad. But see, that's neorealism. Yeah, that is that is something that actually, at least in in part, takes place in a world where story kind of matters. Well, and it's it's expressive, and it's it's kind of. Abstract expressionism with with beautiful cinematography, and it's a political statement on, sure. uh, you know, just people getting over and partying too much and shit like that. And it had its own weird energy. It's a little long, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, but it's a beautiful movie to watch, and uh, it's it's iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love Criterion. I feel like every every time Criterion releases a movie. New York Film Academy loses a student because why pay tuition <laughs> for a shitty trade school when you can just watch a master have his work dissected by other masters? Right. I, I love Criterion movies. I don't buy a lot of stuff anymore, but I buy Criterion movies. Just bought Naked Lunch the other day. Nice. As a matter of fact, yeah. At Costco. This is the world we live in. <laughs> a William Burroughs de- book adapted by David Cronenberg into a Criterion movie is available at Costco. Is available at Costco on Blu-ray for nineteen ninety nine. That's so weird to me. I know. Ugh. Made me proud to be a member. So the ba- <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to describe the plot here. The plot revolves around a slave boy named uh, Giton or Giton. I'm not really sure how you pronounce it. Um, but it, it is it's he is pronounced a Giton. Giton. It's he's so beautiful that he is sought after by every man who comes in contact with him. And his original lover is a character named uh, Incolpio, who loses Giton to a rival, uh, Asilto. And the whole movie is Asilto and Giton kind of traveling through these very disjointed stories. And then there are kind of tales within, like stories within the plays within the play, kind of thing. Um, but it's just about this overall journey of these two and the characters that they meet. And, and the novel that it's based on is apparently only sur- only survives in portions. Right. So right off the bat, you know, Fellini is adapting something that's not even a complete story. That's the kind of thing where you go, dude, I get it. You're smart. Yeah. I get it. You like to make movies. I get it. 
Fill in the fucking blanks, pal. And as much as I get it, I don't fucking get it. I, yeah. I, I will freely admit this right now. It may be a, this, the kind of thing where this is high art that is way over my head, and I just don't get it. I may be too stupid for Fellini, and I'm fine with that. But I'm sorry. Like there are things that I'm the things that bother me in movies like this are artistic expressions that I feel are completely just there to be there just there to have something on screen so that you could say that you did it there's a scene in an in an, like a museum where this poet is just babbling on about what real poetry is and they're looking at works of art and then all of a sudden between two works of art is this double decker cage full of naked people yeah that just goes by no one looks at it no one acknowledges it it just goes by and i'm like what the fuck what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck is that? Why are there? Why is there a scene with a hundred naked people in what looks like a giant jacuzzi jumping up and down like they're in a human spin cycle? I don't get it. What the? Just uh, and your story makes no sense. You leap from you leap from story to story. Then you have movies with you have tales within the story. Like it's too much. It's too much. It completely loses my attention because it doesn't seem to care whether you're following the thread of the narrative. All that it really cares about is jamming a lot of imagery down your throat and didn't probably shouldn't have phrased it that way um, because <laughs> and that's the thing is like I'm not even put off by this movie by how overtly homosexual it is I'm put off by this movie because it's not telling a cogent story that's so, my bigger problem well, with this film yeah you know the way you started that lead in with the there was a beautiful boy and people in power just want him Again, I was going back to Foxcatcher. There you go, so right? Was, you can another, make that work. It, it was another DuPont type thing and a Channing Tatum being a beautiful young man. You can you can definitely make that work. I think but here, see, they told the whole story. They did. They told the whole <laughs> a story. A beginning, a middle, and an end. And that didn't feel like an exhaustive chore that was some sort of pulpit from which Fellini could get up and go, I am an artist! It's like, okay, fine. I don't care. Well, and, you know, here's the other element of that is that you can't help but say, okay, so is this some kind of anti-fascism, post-World War II statement, political statement, cartoon kind of thing? I mean, how much did, how much of the ridiculousness and the and the shittiness of it did Fellini go, yeah, this needs to go down in history forever. This right? needs to last forever. I mean, how much are we... Reaching back, how much? How much are? How much are the fans of today and the scholars of today reaching back and giving a hand job to the masters of the past? Yeah, because it still matters. Because I think that a lot of movies don't matter after a while. They 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 should. Maybe I'm wrong in saying that, but I think that sometimes, you know, a joke is a joke. You 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 make your joke, you make your point, and then the subject of the joke dies off and. You know, the joke isn't part of the history anymore. The history is the history. Does right. that make sense? No, no, it definitely makes sense. And and I know that like some people are going to say, well, maybe what's remarkable, maybe what's noteworthy about a movie like this is that it was doing things like you know, with all the nudity and all the homosexuality. It's like, but the thing is, in America in the late 60s, doing a movie like this would have absolutely been groundbreaking and nightmarishly bold for audiences but Italy in the late 60s, way more sexually liberated in its art than America was. I mean, you had people like Pasolini and you had other movies by Fellini. Like, this was not a brand new thing for the Italians to create. Like, the, you know, the, the idea of just kind of like this rampant sexual liberation throughout the whole movie and like expressing, you know, homosexual themes as if it's just everyday life. Again, 
I just don't see it as that groundbreaking when you think about the scope of Italian cinema at the time. Like, I just, it, and to me, like, that, I, I sit there and I try to think of the merits of a movie like this, and I just, I come up with nothing. And I, in fact, I was more entertained and more fascinated by the documentaries mm-hmm. on, on this, uh, Criterion Blu-ray, uh, one of which was, um, a guy named Luca Canali, who is a consultant on the film, and then uh, Joanna Paul, who's kind of a film historian. I had I learned so much more from that than I did the movie itself, and I feel like that's the problem, is that the movie is not giving me what I need to, not even necessarily enjoy it, but just appreciate it as yeah. a work of art. It just wants to throw imagery at the screen and hope that you take something away from it. And it just, to me, it just doesn't work. Yeah, I've, I've known people that, uh, that will... They read every biography of everybody that ever did anything. And mm-hmm. it's like, just read their book. Read their books. Don't <laughs> right. read their biography. You know, you read one book and then read the biography of the guy. Now, just read their books. Let them stand on their own. Because the biography ultimately is about the guy writing the biography, you know? Yeah. And so in this example, the, the documentarians have their own take on things and their take is more interesting than what they're doing their take on. Exactly. And that's, kind of a bullshit thing it is it is kind of a bullshit thing it is definitely <laughs> so, kind of a bullshit thing yeah i've uh, i i'm not an anti-fellini guy uh and i love uh, one, one of my absolute favorite uh filmmakers is michelangelo antonioni i love his italian movies sure um, blow up is incredible oh my god it's one of the best movies ever made and uh and it just all of them i'm i'm absolutely mad about that guy but uh yeah this one i've never been able to make it all the way through I'm- and and it sounds like it's gonna be sexy Somehow, until you realize that's not even like sexy. That's like, and, and not not like I'm into young guys, not that kind of sexy. But you just think, oh, this is a liberated movie. Something's gonna happen. This is gonna be big winter bush kind of thing going on. It's Italy. Yeah, the that's 60s. and there's a, there's and a lot of that. Gross. There's a lot of celebration of flesh, no matter what shape the person is in, and it ends up looking like an orgy at. at you know, Count Herconum's house. Like I'm just not. That's not my thing. You know, and it, it's it ends up looking like. How orgies probably really look. Yes. <laughs> the people that yeah. you don't want to see having sex. Exactly. But it's just ugly. It's just an ugly movie yeah. and it's gross. It leaves you feeling kind of gross. Just, but not even like where you feel gross, like where you, you, that you're, you're pondering live porn or something. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's, or not, and I don't mean like real torture porn. I mean, but you know what I mean? <laughs> just, just torture misery porn type stuff. That yeah. kind of gross where you're like, uh, or like, Foxcatcher left me feeling gross. You know, yeah, I yeah. just felt like a horrible, you know, I, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck by the end of this one. Sure. That one I felt like I'd been stuck in the vomitorium. You know? <laughs> Quickly to the vomitorium. <laughs> Puke some more. Well, let's move away from the vomitorium and talk about a movie called The Captive with the Ryan Reynolds. Captive. Ryan Reynolds, let me tell you right off the bat, I like Ryan Reynolds. Oh, sure. I think he's one of the best. He's one of those people that uh, of his generation. He's one of those people that a lot of people go, I'm jealous of Ryan Reynolds, so I'm just going to say I don't like him. Well, I, I like him. He's yeah. a goddamn good-looking man, and he's a goddamn good actor, and... and He's sure stuck in a shitty movie. In this yeah, one. that's a, it's really unfortunate. Like this is this is a mystery film. Um, the basic premise here is that Ryan Reynolds plays a guy who's just kind of an average dad, and one day someone 
kidnaps his daughter. He's he's he there he's driving her home from skating practice. He stops off at this diner to get, you know, a pie. He walks in, he literally orders it. When he comes back, she's gone. Out of his truck. Out of his, just, just snatched out of his truck. No idea where she is. Uh, this puts a tremendous strain on uh, his marriage and the, the woman that he is married to. They She basically blames him, um, you know, for, for not being there for the daughter. And it's like, why did you go inside? All of this other the, stuff. The police suspect him as well. And the police suspect him. Uh, the, the, the two police uh, in question here, there's a specific task force that has been set up to this deal... This is in Canada, by the way. It's in Canada. Just for what it's worth. Because, you know, so believe it or already, not, there are bad guys in Canada, but too. But he's a, he's a landscaper in Canada. Yeah. And there's like seven feet of snow on the ground. There's never the any grass. There's... There's one scene where he has a whole bunch of trees in the back of his truck, and I'm like, "Where are you going to put? What those? are you going to do with those?" <laughs> <laughs> the it's, ground it's a fair is question. frozen. It's a fair that question. That is why your business is not doing well. Absolutely, but so the the two police officers here, uh, one is played by Rosario Dawson, who's the kind of the head of this task force that is specifically set up to break up uh, child abduction, child pornography rings. Uh, that's that's what they do, and the latest uh, officer to be brought into the fold here is played by um, Scott Speedman. Scott Speedman, and so what else has he done? Scott he Speedman, looks familiar, but I don't know. He who was he, he came into the business, or his big break was in the uh, the Underworld movies. Oh. he was that guy that uh, that Kate Beckinsale's character was really into. Might yeah. be like half vampire, half werewolf, right, okay. half bullshit. Yeah, he had um, that vague familiarity. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's a film basically about what's happened to this girl. And it's really, like, the most interesting part of the movie is what has happened to her and how the people well, that the- have... Theoretically the most interesting part. Theoretically <laughs> the most interesting part is what has happened to her in the sense that the people who have abducted her have actually got her as a lure. She's actually luring other children into this okay. ring because she's forced to. Well, let's let's back up. Let let's let's get a schematic of this movie go. Okay. It's an 8-year period of time True. that jumps back and forth to different winter scenes during that 8 years. It's always winter it's in always Canada. It's always winter in Canada. So it's the the Muriel Enos, the wife, mm-hmm. the mother of the child is meeting with Rosario Dawson. Uh, off and on. Who's going to become her therapist even though she's a cop. Yeah, it's it's strange. Yeah. Um, Additionally, at some point in this, because there's no... There's no like Life magazine with the date on the cover sitting around, yeah. or, or a soundtrack change, or a or film stock change yeah. between scenes to let you know that it's a different time yeah. in this eight years. And additionally, Ryan Reynolds keeps the same truck with the same Garfield in the window and the same, you know, little Every, ice everything that was stickers. laying back there when she was back when there. She was, so so that doesn't help. Like yeah. for the and yet the truck doesn't look any older in that eight year time period. So you're going back and forth, going, wait, what? What's going on? And then at some point in there, Rosario Dawson disappears, mm-hmm. and we don't know what happened. And so Scott Speedman is investigating her disappearance. But you kind of get the feeling he's doing it off the books, yeah. Because he's, and then we find out a whole lot of information. Here's the deal. There's like six movies going on in Agreed. this movie, yeah, yeah, and yeah. none of them get it right. You never really know, even though it's hinted at, that the daughter who has been uh, abducted by Kevin Durand, who I don't get the this guy. He's I, a fucking cartoon. He he's got like 
He is the weirdest. He's, he's like Errol Flynn. He's like this weird Errol Flynn impersonator. If Errol Flynn was like a mincing weirdo, like yeah, I, like with fake gray hair. I'm sorry. Like if you're looking, if you're in this story and you're looking for the guy that's the head of the child pornography ring, he's basically wearing a T-shirt that says, <laughs> "I'm a big pedo creep," and nobody sees. He walks around like. She's literally what's, sitting next to him at a gala. What's going on? With Rosario you? Dawson is sitting next to this guy at a gala and doesn't go, What the fuck is going on here? Yeah. And, and you can't tell if his boss, Bruce Greenwood, is involved either. That That's kind of up in the air if they're a. Because he has a secret room in his house where he films everything. Okay, here's what else he does. Not a, This guy. Built an entire subdivision and uh, hotel. Uh, 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 it's in Niagara, so it's on the northern side of Niagara Falls. This big luxury hotel overlooking Niagara Falls, and he put cameras in the rooms in the hotels because even eight years later, Muriel Enos is a hotel chambermaid cleaning the rooms. Yeah, and then he goes to the trouble of leaving little clues. <laughs> baby teeth, skating trophies, and things that the girl had so that he can get a new level of misery porn of filming the mother finding elements of her daughter's life while at work. Now, that is a story that could really have been weird. You know, there was a... there was. It's one thing if you drop the ball in a movie. It's another if you drop seven of them. (laughs) You're a terrible juggler at that point. Every storyline was a movie in itself. Yeah. And instead, they just didn't do anything. I agree. Yeah, totally. It was a terribly disappointing movie that had me at the beginning. I mean, oh my God, every parent's nightmare. By the end of it, it was every critic's nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Johnny Neal on how to eviscerate a movie 101. I am impressed. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I think I think there are some strong performances here and then Kevin Durant is the most horribly miscast villain you could possibly hope. He's he, like I said, he's a cartoon. Like he is obviously a mustache twirling villain from frame 1 and how how he's able to walk around with normal people and nobody suspects him at all is beyond me. It's so ridiculous. And and not only that, but there are points in this movie where the the chronological jumping around is completely unnecessary. Like oh. Rosario Dawson's character goes missing and the very next scene she's back at headquarters, but they're not it's not a scene where it's like, it's important to know this. Okay, it's important to know this thing that happened before she went missing, so that's why we're showing it to you. It's something that could have been completely excised out of the movie, but we're sitting there going, wait, wasn't she just abducted? Why is she back at the state? I'm so fucking confused. It doesn't even make sense no. why it's out of order. No, it, you don't have to do that. You're it, not fucking Tarantino, it, all right? And it, it robs it of any kind of drama. Yeah. Like, there, there is an opportunity to see the strain on the marriage instead of her... Saying, well, yeah, I'm not living with him now because every time I look at him, I'm mad at him. Yeah. Well, how about if you just show me how hard that is? Yeah. You know, I mean, Ryan Reynolds and Muriel Enos would certainly be able to pull that off. I mean, Muriel Enos is the queen of makeup free misery. You know, if, if, if you've seen, uh, her show, The Homicide Story, The Murder. What was that show? <laughs> the that Homicide show. Store. That murder show that she was on with the uh, was it the killing? The killing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm out of I'm out of words. That homicide show. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> I know. I couldn't remember saying. what it was called. The the murdering or something. 
<laughs> the murdering of Rosie. <laughs> Just the murdering. That's a I pretty like, good title. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a good movie. This is this is not one that you necessarily need to waste your time on. Uh, which is sad to say because it's got a great cast. It had some potential, but like Johnny Neal so eloquently put it, you can drop one ball, but when you start dropping seven at a time, that's when you really have a problem. That's when you start riding a unicycle, my friend. Indeed. Well, before we jump into the rest of the titles we have to talk about, let's cut over to Chris Cox with a special report. Breaking news. We interrupt this episode of Digital Noise to bring you a special report all the way from Japan via Austin, Texas and Chris Cox's living room couch as we sit down with Matt Frank, the, the artist behind multiple Godzilla titles and soon-to-be Gamera, on the new... I can't even... How do you fuck do you say this thing, the name of this thing? <laughs> this the series? Power Rangers in Japan. Hyoryu Sentai Jurenja! And yeah, here they call it Super Sentai Juranga or something. Juranja. Ninja. Juranja. Jurangers? Jurangers. Jurangers. Do you have these shrunken on sale? Maybe a little kubla, maybe? Uh, this is the new box set from Shout Factory Yep. Uh, that I didn't get sent because, quite frankly, I didn't actually ask for it. Um, well, you knew is, I was going to kick down your door anyway. <laughs> I really, you know, it's the thing, I think of you more as the kaiju guy, the guy mm -hmm. with Godzilla and the giant monsters, and I forget that you also, like, you're like, well, it's from Japan and it's bright and colorful and has people kicking the ass out of giant people. In general, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. I mean... Is there something like that that you hate, out of curiosity, like, of that genre that you're like, fuck that? <sighs> I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> well, I, we've talked about it before on the show, but one of the only examples I can think of off the top of my head is uh, Big Man Japan. Oh, yeah, you didn't like did that? I did not care for it. Yeah, I was kind of lukewarm on that myself. I just, it, it felt very... It felt like, on the one hand, it was trying to kind of be a love letter... But it was so kind of cynical and mean-spirited that I was just repulsed by it. You like felt, I you felt kind of the same way about the new Power Rangers fan film trailer as well. Uh, I well, it's a, I, you know, that's a whole other topic. Right. Well, let's just talk about this, which is yeah. once again, like for people who don't know, talk about like the the fact that Power Rangers is not. Like, was not an American invention. Right. I mean, this is fairly well known at this point, but it, it still bears repeating that Power Rangers is really not a very American concept. It's a, it's a, it's developed from this very long running Japanese franchise called Super Sentai. And Power Rangers just recently hit uh, 20 years. Recently, I think they're about 21, 22 years at this being point. Said, the American television show. The American television show. The Japanese series Super Sentai started in 1975. So it's a 40 year old franchise. And they're just, their most recent series just had its like second episode, which was um, Shuriken Sentai Nin Ninja. It's a, it's a ninja series. How long do you have to practice before you remember these things? You, you just shout into a mirror repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was like a teenager. Teenager in the VHS tape trading days. Nice. When, like, way before YouTube, the only way you could get cool, weird stuff was like literally going on uh, bulletin board systems, oh. every web, and finding little communities of people who wanted to trade 
cool VHS tapes. Or if you were lucky enough to live in a town that had an amazing video store that like would specialize in that sort of yeah. thing, which I also did. Yeah. But there was like people would tape trade these, the original Japanese ones, where they had dubbed over it. With oh really no, ridiculous, nonsensical stuff. Oh no, uh, and that's what my only previous exposure to this really was that sort of thing. And yeah. then when the Power Rangers came out, I was like. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that is one of those things where this this whole genre of costume superheroes is really an institution over in Japan. I mean, it's it, it, it's really much more of an integral part of their pop culture. Whereas over here, it's pretty much just Power Rangers. Mm. They've tried a couple other times with a few other series like Masked Rider and Ultraman. I can't believe and, Ultraman didn't take off here. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole conversation we had about why Ultraman can't really. I mean, it was popular back in the '60s, but. It can't get a foothold, and I think it's largely because it's a little too Japanese in yep. some respects. No, when I was a kid, the things I liked from Japan were, you know, Godzilla, obviously, Gamera, right. uh, with the the battleship Yamato ship. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, uh, Star Blazers Star is what they brought it over here as uh, uh, Ultraman, and yeah. then Kimba the White Lion. Oh, <laughs> or as it was later called, the Lion King. <laughs> oh, that was pretty much a ripoff of Kimba the White Lion. Considering they had blown up, uh, according to testimonials from the Disney Animation Department. They had blown up giant panels of the comic, of the comic book pages and to put over their walls as inspiration. Oh, okay. I mean, I mean, I don't think it was a. Da- I think it was originally intended to be an adaptation, and they just uh, decided. No, it's just we're just gonna. So what happened with the the, <laughs> the Power Rangers and the Super Sentai? With like like how did it go from Japan to America? Well, um, it originally there actually was an attempt, and there may have been more attempts um, before that to bring it over here. In fact, I believe um, Stan Lee had once because uh, 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 this is also the same company Toei Studios who created that infamous Japanese Spider-Man series right and the similarities are very apparent Stan Lee had in- intended to actually do the same thing bring over the um, Japanese Spider-Man series and and you know cast some American actors and use the effect sequences I believe if I'm remembering that correctly and then there was a, there were a couple of parodies like there was a, one of the Sentai series was called Dynaman it was brought over and dubbed as a parody just one episode, but um, Power Rangers was born out of Dinosaur Sentai Judanger. And just to be clear, they're not like running around spouting Yiddish. They're <laughs> it's Ju is the uh, is is a word that that basically means beast or creature. So it's Beast Ranger. Like it's the same it's the same word as Kaiju, which is mysterious beast. Or oh, okay, yeah. So. Um, and and the the they they use a couple different words using the ju sir word whatever the word is anyway just wanted to clear that up <laughs> but anyway um so Haim Saban uh, was the guy who was credited for kind of bringing Super Sentai over here and turning it into Power Rangers simply because it was this institution over in Japan they had already adapted a couple of other series I believe uh, to bring over here but nothing nothing of the, on this scale and so. They brought they they saw Jew Ranger and pretty much just picked it out because it had dinosaurs and kids love dinosaurs. Yes, they do. Up until this point, none of the other Super Sentais had had these really aggressively, overtly animal themed. 
teams. They were more kind of generic sci-fi. I think closest thing was there was a bird-themed team just before that. Mm. Um, but they but they were a lot more like more like fighter jets and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> so it's 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 a long. There's it's, a lot of stuff. There's there. a lot to go through. I'm trying to cherry pick here. Um, but Judanger was really immediately uh, kind of snapped up, and they brought it over here. Uh, funny thing is, near as I can figure, uh, they didn't actually have any translations for the show. They didn't actually know what the show was about. They just went through and plucked out the effects sequences, which is why there are some rather glaring continuity errors when you're watching... If, if you've seen Ranger and then watch Power Rangers, you'll notice, like... That shouldn't be in that scene, because that's referencing an entirely different plot line that's not even in the American version. They were doing their best to mash together things that ultimately had different plots in the American version. Basically, yeah. I mean, stuff that was really... And then reshooting with American actors and the mask sequences. Right, exactly. The, the, uh, The plots are like... I mean, Jude Ranger is a completely different show from Power Rangers. I mean there's some very there's some very basic uh, surface similarities but I mean a lot of it is really there's a lot that's been lost in translation quite frankly. Right. Yeah. Um but I'm sure it was explained by Bill Murray when he whispered it into Scarlett Johansson's ear. So. We can only hope. Uh, um, <laughs> now this is indeed the the Zuranger show. Juranger. 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 Yes. Show. I feel like I'm being racist when I even try to say that correctly. Well, so. nobody wants to say anything, but... but. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is just the collection of this specific aspect of the Super Sentai, because there have been other yeah. collections. This is them. And so how many... Like, how long was the show going on for, this particular aspect? Well, well, the Super Sentai, because it's been this institution, th- that's the thing. Power Rangers, when it came out over here, they did everything they could to keep that same central dynamic going with those same actors. Yeah. I mean, it went on for, like, three years before they finally had, had to start changing people out. Uh, and in, But in Japan, <clears throat> it's always been 50 or so episodes and then you reboot and you change the cast over with a completely new story right. and you know new characters new villains new themes and uh and and Juranger was just i believe 1992 or 1993 1993 was when Power Rangers came out so it must have been 91 92 uh and it was you know it's only about 50 episodes as are on this disc um 52 53 I'm getting all my numbers mixed up. <laughs> it's, uh, real, yeah, real professional over here. Um, <laughs> Looking at the box. I don't know. I don't know. Just I, buy the damn thing. Just buy the of it. I don't know why I'm drunk now. But <laughs> anyway, yeah, it was, um, you know, it, it only lasted, like I said, they only last about 50 so episodes so they can tell their complete story and everybody can have their arc and then they just move on, which is why it's so funny whenever I hear people talk about how, oh, well, the original Power Rangers were the best. Why? But because they had the most episodes. Okay, you know it was marketing, right? Because we can't let go of those classic... Funny side right. note, the, the Ranger, this series, we, we... Okay, so everybody here in America knows the, the Tyrannosaurus, like they're, they're, they're all based on prehistoric animals, the Tyrannosaurus, Mastodon, Pterodactyl, you I know. I did not actually know that. No one's asking you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the... And but these suits and these dinosaur mechs and everything, these are all 
ubiquitous to our pop culture. Like most people, Chris, know <laughs> these these characters. This is a minor footnote in the history of Super Sentai over in Japan. Okay. This this Judanger, this series. So this isn't even considered one of the primary Sentai series. No, it's 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 actually I I have I have some friends over in Japan who uh shout out to my buddy Tomoya who uh I asked uh, uh, extensively about Super Sentai and kind of got his feedback and he was talking about how a lot of Sentai fans in Japan, uh, people who grew up with it are now like his age, you know, adults really didn't much care for Ranger because it was one of the first Super Sentais to really start gearing more towards children. Right, okay. Up to that point, Sentai was more of a, a slightly more mass family appeal. Like, the characters weren't so aggressively uh, youthful, and there weren't as right. many child actors. And uh, this is also unique because it's a fantasy series, whereas all the Sentai up to that point were sci-fi. And, and this is what almost exclusively the American Power Rangers stuff was was taken from. Right. I mean, it, it, eventually Power Rangers started doing the Sentai thing where they'll just change teams okay. over. Uh, now, what is the plot of this particular storyline? Okay, hang on. Such as it is. Oh, there we go. All right. <laughs> Got it. All right, so it's Matt's plot corner. <laughs> okay, you have ten seconds. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> God, that's enough to give myself a, like a hemorrhage or something, right? So, okay, um, in Jude Ranger, uh, it's been sixty-five million years, hundred seventy million years, whatever. Uh, it's been a couple hundred million years, and the evil witch Bandora has returned to Earth, as she's known in America as Rita Repulsa. Jesus, I yeah. think they should have stuck with Bandora. Yeah, well, Bandora is... A, a, a Rita is always played up as kind of more of a goofball. Bandora is legitimately effing crazy. Her whole shtick is she wants to murder all of the planet's children in increasingly uh, convol- convoluted ways. I don't see the problem. I know. But we, we gotta, <laughs> gotta put on a good face here. But anyway, um, Bandora is kind of released from her, from her pr- imprisonment because she was the one who destroyed the dinosaurs. Now, <laughs> this show kind of takes a bit of a creationist angle with the whole planet Earth's history thing mm. in that there actually were humans who lived alongside dinosaurs. Yes. 65 whatever million years ago. Yeah, so that that is not actually true. No, that, except for Raquel Welch. Well, so yeah, I mean it was, there. it was just it was just a god, that sounds like paradise. Just a just a whole race of Raquel Welches. I'm in. Let's yeah. do this. Let's get the time machine. All right, you go you go work on that. Where we're going, oh. it would have been more convenient if they had roads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, okay, we're getting off point. I was going to start talking about Tardises. Uh okay, so uh so at the time, there were these five tribes that lived in concert with the dinosaurs, uh, and each one worshipped a different species. Although, if you want to get technical, in the list of dinosaurs being Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, Mastodon, Sabertooth, Tiger, and Pteranodon, only two of those are dinosaurs. <laughs> the Pteranodon is not a dinosaur. Right. That's... And the other two are mammals. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, whatever. T Rex, <laughs> Triceratops, Stegosaurus, 
and cat. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> what it would be. I mean, and, and um, you know, it's funny. The Tyrannosaurus actually lived closer to us in the timeline, in the timeline of the planet Earth, than to Stegosaurus. Yes, I do know that. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Anyway, <laughs> so there were these five tribes. And so here's the thing. Bandora destroying all the dinosaurs was really particularly bad because, brace yourselves, the dinosaurs were God's chosen race. Oh, boy. So yeah. this is where we get into the whole uh, Ranger thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> 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 ain't cooked all the way through. <laughs> okay, I gotta, I gotta do that. Anyway, um, well, it, 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 well, there's this whole thing where the dinosaurs were kind of these holy creatures to these prehistoric humans. But these prehistoric humans were very Arthurian. They had this... Oh, they were kings and knights and queens and stuff, and it was all swords and sorcery. How much of the show is focusing on this part of it? Most of it. Oh, so this actually takes place back in ancient Oh, oh no, 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 no. Uh, th- a lot of this is told through flashbacks. Oh, okay. Uh, I, but the sword and sorcery angle is really a central theme of the show, because then you have these five knights who were placed in suspended animation just in case Bandora ever came back. And the five of the, you know, there's the, the red, the... Uh, I, okay, I'll just go through their names. Geki, the Red Ranger, the Tyranno Ranger, Goshi, the Mammoth Ranger, Dan, the Tricera Ranger, <laughs> Boy, the Tiger Ranger, and May, the Girl. I mean, the Terror Ranger. The Pink Ranger? (laughs) Yeah, the Pink Ranger. Why do I have to be the Pink Ranger? Look, if I let everybody pick who they want to be, I get five guys wanting to be the Black Ranger. Fuck you, you're the Pink Ranger. (laughs) They had a joke almost exactly like that in the Dynaman parody. (laughs) I want to be pink. You have to be pink, you're a girl. (laughs) But yeah, the so they get together and they... You know, they, they have these all these powers and stuff, and they can morph into their ranger forms, which is where the show starts... Oh, I was going to say starts getting weird, but... Um, <laughs> I think we're already well past that point. Yeah. So, they, they, you know, they have their ranger suits, and, you know, it, it, it's a little incongruous because... Or a little inconsistent because they're supposed... It's supposed to be this Arthurian fantasy, but and, and even all their monsters that they fight are all based on mythological creatures. There's a minotaur, a sphinx... Um, uh, a, like a griffin, a vampire, all of these very, uh, very Western mythological creatures that they have to fight. And this is like ripping up the pages of a monster manual, just throwing <laughs> them in the air. And let, yep. let, let it fall where they may. Yeah, there's your show. And that's one of the things about the American version I thought was kind of disappointing was because they really lost a lot of that cool mythological angle. So were the, because the flashbacks not part of it, and the uh, was the mythology not part of it on the American translation? I keep forgetting that you didn't really watch Power Rangers. I have never watched Power Rangers. Okay, so compare that to the plot of Power Rangers, which is um, somewhat similar. Rita Repulsa uh, returns from being banished because we're using Japanese footage at this point. Um, A wise old wizard named Zordon, who's a floating head in a tube, uh, randomly reaches out to the five nearest teenagers that he can find Gives them dinosaur powers and say, go out, fight the bad okay. guys. Right. Yeah. It's a, it was Zordon, not Zardoz. It sounds like Zardoz. <laughs> Zardoz! Venus is bad. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have been so fortunate. Actually, I think that the Rangers wouldn't have been like, I don't know about these powers thing, man. 
But um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot more. Now, that's not to say I'm not dumping on Power Rangers. I mean, for what it was, it's a perfectly charming, uh, funny little kids show from the 90s that became this big pop culture phenomenon. But would you say ultimately you're a much bigger fan of this version of it? I think as far as nostalgia goes, I, I think I have a bit more of a knee-jerk reaction to Power Ranger. Where I'm like, ah, you do, I want it. But uh, with Ranger, objectively, I find it to be a better plotted, better written show because there's this really strong core mythology to it. And then there's this whole thing when the Green Ranger shows up, who's like the... The Burai, bat- the Dragon Ranger. Burai, the Dragon Ranger. Thank you, Wikipedia. Yes, yes, he's awesome. He's He's one of the more really dramatic angles of the show because he, in the Japanese version, he's the Red Ranger's brother because his father killed the other guy's father, but they still were like half-brothers or something, and it was it's all very Shakespearean, and uh, yeah, I know. Loosely. <laughs> very loose use of that. Very <laughs> do- oh, melodramatic. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, and so, and then there's this, God, there's this whole thing where he, like, didn't have the same protective spell over him when he was sleeping for 65 million years, so he's actually dying, and uh, and there's this whole thing where he, like, kind of he he has to try to join forces with the power with I can almost call power rangers with the G Rangers, but he can't because he's if he leaves this magical room, this little candle representing his life will burn out and he'll die. And it's yeah, Jesus, <laughs> it's super kind of over the top. And uh, seems like some of these plots are written by doing Mad Libs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all it's all kind of this series in particular it's a lot of it is rooted in both japanese and and various world mythologies right. and so you also said they were going for a more kitty friendly almost absurdist type of like <sighs> okay well that's the thing about this fucking series um so so i love Ranger. it's a really cool it's got all this cool arthurian stuff they have to go on like a vision quest for their their myths, mystical weapons and all this crazy like mythological stuff going on and it's fun and lighthearted. And then there's the fucking kids. Because that's my the one thing I got to dock points from this series is that... Okay, you know how there's a monster of the week? Yeah. There's also a child of the week. Also, there's a new little kid that they have to enlist their help for some reason or defend or whatever. Or, or they have to help this kid, like, get over his problems. And these uh, kids are fucking liabilities, man. I mean... Yeah, I, this seems like it's irresponsible Power Ranger. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the... You're like, you're fighting giant monsters. Who gives a shit if this kid isn't sure if his mom really loves him or not? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, there's a whole episode... Oh, my God, this is actually, like... I actually kind of liked this episode because it was so absurd. There's a family that they run into at one point where the the only... the, the Both the parents work, and so the kid, you know, is, uh, has to go to school. The only time the family gets to spend time together is when they eat so they're all fat asses. <laughs> and and then they and it all it's just so it's so and they have to like like reestablish this family's bonds with each other by getting them to eat together again because it's their only it's their only time they get to spend with each other and it's something to do with a pig monster and it's it's just I mean I just I just thinking it like, as a kid I would think that maybe maybe there would be some things where I might be able to relate to, like, oh, well, I can relate to this kid because maybe he's, you know, he's got problems with his parents or something. And But it's just, it's every 
almost every goddamn episode. Is this the biggest aspect of which the show was probably not looked at as being as good because it had really said, we need to appeal to much smaller kids and do that? Yeah, we need to really shoehorn in these kid characters. The kid, I actually got to the point where I was watching this series, I was just fast-forwarding through the kid part because it was not important. Right. I wanted to get to the cool Arthurian shit. It was where, a subplot that had nothing to do with the other stuff, generally. Or, if it, or it was very rudimentary. And like I said, these kids... These kids are all, like I said, they're liabilities. They're running around with some magical artifact, and the Rangers show up and like, hey, we're superheroes. We really need that thing. And the kids are like, fuck you, it's mine, and they'll run <laughs> off. And then the monsters will show up, and they're like, give me that, your kids. And they're like, ah, here, take it. Yeah, I'd be like, if I saw these guys, I'd be like, well, first off, they're not like attached to modern day morality. So it'd be like, look, we're trying to ch- save everyone and just fireball that kid. Immediately, <laughs> you know? Fuck you, kid. We were a lot more brutal in dinosaur times. If some kid was wouldn't clean his room, we just feed him to a T-Rex. Yeah, one um, little kid, you know, I mean, come on, what's that versus the entire planet? Let's yeah, I mean, we've already seen our entire race go extinct once before. <laughs> we should totally re-edit these things. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but yeah. anyway, we can't spend too much longer on yeah. this. But, uh, so ultimately, what is the best thing about this series and what is the worst thing about this series? Well, the worst thing really is, you know, I really do think are the is are the kids, you know, having to suffer through these kid subplots. I mean, sometimes they're okay, other times they are kind of insufferable. Um, and it's uh, it was also really apparent to the Japanese fans because the series just before this, Jetman, was a uh, very was a lot more of a kind of a serious, <laughs> almost hard sci-fi show that had a little had some really cool like grown-up characters and stuff, and it had a, a lot more intricate plot line. And this, for a lot of fans, kind of kept felt like a step down because it was suddenly so much more juvenile. Right, right. Uh, the better aspects, of course, is just if you really want to, you just it, it's got this really elaborate just mythology to it. They have all these, like I said, all these cool mythological monsters that they have to fight. And the fact that they're dinosaur mechs is that they summon out a... So the Megazord, the giant robot that they pilot all together, a la Voltron... They all come together in their dinosaur form into one giant dinosaur robot. Basically, okay, that thing is the physical embodiment of God. In the show. In the show. It actually berates the Rangers every now and then because they aren't, they aren't doing what it tells them to do. Even though they're the ones piloting the thing, it'll sometimes throw them out of it and say, like, you have displeased the gods, and then it'll, it'll vanish away up into heaven. Boy, that, this is even more complicated than Shinto. <laughs> <laughs> Shinto could take notes from this shit. <laughs> yeah, and so just if you... If, and I, but it is, it is worth getting invested in because it is really fun. And the, the production value of Japanese television series has always been amusing to me because in America, if they can't do something or if they don't have the budget to do something, generally they just won't do it. In Japan, they're like, fuck it! <laughs> Put it on screen! <laughs> it doesn't matter how cheap it is. <laughs> well, just, yeah, it's, it's throw it on the screen and see what sticks. Yeah, basically. Uh, and this is from Shout Factor. You said yep. this com- uh, has the complete... How many discs is this? This is like... It's like... Oh, God, it's like 10 discs. Yeah, wow, it's okay. 10. Um, um, and uh, so this is the complete original series mm-hmm. that the, your 
precious Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is is stolen from. Yeah. Uh, it also it only has the one bonus feature, I believe, which is uh, I basically the the Power Morphicon 2014 panel. Uh, yeah. Did you get a chance to watch that? Uh, I did a little bit. Um, I was actually there at Power Morphicon 2014. Of course, yeah. you of were. course, I was. <laughs> uh, and because um, I I recently did a Power Rangers comic cover and uh, cool. Yeah. Which one? Uh, it was a store exclusive for Heroes and Fantasies in San Antonio. Oh, okay. So it's a limited edition, but it was pretty fun to do. But um, I was there, and uh, you know, and the the actor who played Geki, the Tyranno Ranger, was also there. Really cool guy. He gave me a hug, and uh, <laughs> uh, it was him as well as the stunt actors for Tyranno Ranger and Dragon Ranger. Oh, nice. Uh, they were all there. They were super cool. Um, and then for some reason, Lou Ferrigno, no one was <laughs> He just shows up. He's like, you know, just yelling at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Let him in here. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that is honestly a little bit, I got to, I got to dock a few points on that because there was, there's a lot of material for every Super Sentai series that would make for really great, um, special features. Right. Like there was a whole music video collection of different songs they composed just for the show because that's what they do in Japan. Or like I said. <laughs> The, the separate audio of those, like, dubs from, the, like, the, the 80s where American fans oh my were God. putting on ridiculous dubs. That would be how hysterical that'd be to find those, yeah. dredge those out, and oh, put God. them on top of this for alternate audio. It would be really amazing. I mean, just, just and just to kind of, as a, as a bit of a summary, as a bit of an end note, I really am amazed that this even came out, because this is something that's, that Power Rangers fans and Sentai fans for decades have been asking for. And I think because uh, Power Rangers has come back into the hands of Saban, it was in the hands of Disney for a while, not to its um, misfortune. I mean, there was some good stuff they produced, but now Saban is really milking this for all it's worth now, and uh, I'm really happy they put Ranger out, and I'm hoping they'll put out more Sentai. Well, it's it's Shop Factory, and if anybody's going to put out this sort of stuff, like where they know there's a niche audience for it that's devoted to it, yeah. it's usually Shop Factory. So oh, yeah. let's let's salute them and hope that we see more of the same for the future, at least for Matt Frank's sake. For my sake, please, people. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Hey. I'm so glad to know more about Sentai Rangers. That's, that's really that's awesome. That's great, man. Hooray. Fuck yeah, I can sleep well tonight. Fuck yeah. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna talk now. We're, this is gonna be the the mixed bag finale here, and I'm gonna start with a movie, uh, a Scream Factory release that I'm very excited about, and that is Blackula and Scream Blackula Scream for the first time on Blu-ray together or at all separately because no one else has ever put this out. Thank you so much, Scream Factory, for doing so. Blackula is unabashedly one of my favorite black exploitation movies, and I think it's legitimately good. Oh yeah, it's not a movie that I like because it's so bad. It's not an ironic appreciation. I think William Marshall, who plays uh, the, the to plays Blackula. By the way, William Marshall, best known as the King of Cartoons, the King of Cartoons on Pee Wee's Playhouse. So <laughs> okay, I'm going to back you up there and say best known as Blackula. <laughs> Okay, best known to me as a child as the king of cartoons on Pee-wee's Playhouse. And then later I find out he plays uh, uh, Mumawalde, Mumawalde. Who, who is an African prince who is unjust, awesome. unjustly uh, saddled with this curse very early on in the movie Blackula, uh, where he becomes the, the Black Dracula. He becomes He's Blackula. tortured by Dracula, yeah. buried alive because the Dr- Dracula wanted his wife. Dracula's, Dracula's doing dick. like a diplomatic thing, or they're in in Transylvania. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like just a big such conference. A weird fucking movie in that concept that 
you will be Blackula now. It's just so great. Yes. William Marshall is just so great in this movie. He's got such this this air of like sophisticated theatricality like he's a, like a like a classically trained thespian and yet he's playing Blackula. Like, yeah, exactly. pretty much like the king of cartoons except <laughs> exactly. with a cape you know he's wearing the same clothes and yet he's he, he can he do he plays the- him with Shakespearean uh, tragedy exactly and that is what you know in 1970s yes. Los Angeles uh, ghetto, uh, Watts riots, just everything that you could imagine that Blackula would not be in, you know, and there, <laughs> there he is and he's awesome. He's just so awesome. Uh, that's all I can say about him man. black William Marshall is just great in it. And William Marshall, he was a stage star. He was a singer. He was, he was, uh, in the old days, and it's starting to, we're starting to get that again. He was one of those guys that would guest star on every TV show, from Bonanza to Streets of San Francisco. You know, you would see him in something like every few weeks, mm-hmm. and, and and we're kind of starting to get back there. I think with with actors helping each other out. You know, actor driven projects, and this is definitely an actor driven project because it could have sucked. Oh, it absolutely! Been such a it spoof. It could have been. Uh, Blackenstein. Oh, which is yeah. fucking terrible and unwatchable, and it's it's just because nobody cared. Yeah, nobody who made that movie gave two shits about it. There is care put into this movie, into Blackula, and a, there's a lot black of pride. There's black. There's a lot of yes. black pride in it. There's African pride. Well, it's because Blackula runs into sort of the the caricatures that you would see in a black exploitation film. He runs into the pimps. He runs into the the fast talking street hustlers, and he fucking despises them. Yeah. And it kind of it's this it's this very interesting sort of counter to most of the the genre where you know those characters are kind of like uh, not really heroicized necessarily, but you know held up and and liked and and are kind of the the main driving force of those movies. Here is a character that is black that is like you are everything I despise. Yeah. Like what I am looking at right now, I I am uh, I am somebody who is is very. Uh, classical somebody who is very uh polite somebody who is very charming and i find your cartoonishness you even though i am the king of cartoons i find your cartoonishness <laughs> very offensive to me and you know it's just it's a really interesting film and it's a lot of it's still a lot of fun yeah um, it is it is a lot of fun yeah and and i i i love this movie and then you come to scream blackula scream which is basically the same movie again, except somebody apparently dared them to do the whole movie inside one house. Because Which sounds they, like something an Italian would do. Exactly. It, 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 <laughs> part of me is like, you know, the gothic tradition, the castles, Bela Lugosi, that, you know, like, there's a lot of that that takes place in a castle. I get that. But it's not a castle. It's not a gothic location. It's a fucking townhouse. And it's just like, it feels like they just didn't have the money to do a lot of location shooting. So they're like, well, let's film mostly in this house. The one thing that is... Uh, significantly different about Scream, Blackula Scream, is that the co-star is Pam Greer. Right. Who obviously is a mainstay, you know, one of the legends of that genre, and it's really great to see her in this, but it's just, it as great as William Marshall continues to be in Scream, Blackula Scream, he's just not given as much to do, he's not given as much to work with, the the story is very limited. Everything's very limited about it, and I'm. I, I it's think it's not about anything. It's not really about anything. Yeah, it's, that's the gist. It kind of goes sequel. nowhere. It's it's a smash and grab sequel. Yeah, just okay. This will make a great double feature. This will be a great way to re-release Blackula, and then you know, 
40 years later, we can even re-release Blackula again with a Blu-ray. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad they put both of these out on Blu-ray. Oh, I, yeah, know, yeah. I, I think it's great. And and the special features on here, I am a little... Because this is one of my favorites, I think I was just hoping for a little bit more in the special features department. Um, there is, on on Blackula, there's an audio commentary with film historian David F. Walker, which is, you know, he's doing... Uh, kind of reflections on black exploitation, And then on Scream Blackula Scream, there's an interview with actor Richard Lawson. Um, and then there's trailers. And that's that's it. Like, I, you know, and I realized that, you know, William Marshall passed on in 2003. It's not like they were going to be able to get... But, you know, you could find probably archival footage. There's stuff out you there. You could make just, a documentary about William Marshall. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could talk... You could, I tell you what, you could you could talk just about the poster, the Blackula poster bloodsucker is the big yeah <laughs> you know it's bloodsucker so- deadlier than dracula warm young bodies will feed his hunger his hot fresh blood his awful thirst and yet they All make right. him out to be a total monster on the poster which is clearly white marketing you know aip yeah. Yeah, american yeah. international pictures selling it and he's not only is he a monster but he's being defeated he has the stake in his heart yeah which is clearly drawn on there and never happens <laughs> in the movie i mean and it's totally like you know don't worry don't don't lock up your daughters we killed the black it's vampire. like it's the 70s the Hayes code is over why do you have to convince us that the monster is punished by the end of the movie it doesn't uh, yeah. make any sense well because he's black because that's, i mean you that's know that's how you, you get white audiences that. to go you see, don't see the, the frank langella dracula they sold him off as a is the this big sexy Broadway yeah, Dracula. He, he's not know? on the poster with like the... several stakes in his chest and bleeding everywhere. Like, oh no! Exactly. It's something very strange. It's an interesting about observation. That. I never thought that, of that. that the, the 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 hero of this movie because he is the hero of this movie. Yes, he is. He's the absolutely. guy that you're rooting for. You don't want him to be taken down. True. And I also love that there's a quote on the original poster here that says, "Blackula is the most horrifying film of the decade." Says the Count Dracula Society. <laughs> they said that that is roger corman making shit up <laughs> i'm sorry there is no way corman didn't write that quote the count dracula society the, the, the count dracula the society CDS? you don't have your secret ring yes cds signet ring i think they have their meetings in a uh, bullshit city <laughs> they have it at the funhouse mirror the funhouse mirror because that's they, they don't reflect i so like okay. seeing that it's okay to be there i like that yeah that's awesome well, another Scream Factory release this week that I am so excited about, I can't even tell you guys, is a deep-fried favorite of mine, and is a film from 1980 called New Year's Evil. 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 I think it should come out again every year. I think it should, should, too. Just put that on with uh, Dick Cavett's corpse hosting the presentation on TCM. Yes, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so New Year's Evil is a film that was made sort of in the in the right at the height of the slasher craze. And this was a time when people were just snatching up holidays as quickly as they could to set a slasher film in. And somebody figured out that oh, you know, somebody over at Canon Films figured out, "Oh, you know what? No one's done anything with New Year's Evil yet or with New Year's Eve, so here's New Year's Evil." And uh, so this this filmmaker, first-time filmmaker Emmett Alston, uh, directs this movie where the basic premise is that there's this big sort of punk rock New Year's Eve celebration going on at the Holiday Inn in Hollywood. 
<laughs> not making that up. That's I am like, a golden god. I, and that's not even like, that's where they actually filmed it. No, they tell you in the movie it's the Holiday Inn. It's not like that's a big secret. So it's like, woo, Holiday Inn. Um, so, right. the, so Pinky Tuscadero, uh, or I guess the actress's name is Roz Kelly, but she is forever Pinky Tuscadero to me. Oh my god. She plays She plays um, this this. I guess it, she would be a VJ, but this kind of precedes a little bit uh, MTV. She's just sort of this punk rock icon, and she gets up on stage, and she's, like, introducing the bands, and she's riling up the crowd, and, like, they have all these uh, TV screens because they're going to ring in New Year in Chicago, in New York, in Denver, out, out in L.A., which is where they are. So it's just like... Well, there are holiday inns all over the country. Bro. Yeah, right? I know. It's, it's crazy how that works. So... <laughs> In the middle of the broadcast, she gets a call from this guy who calls himself evil and says that he's going to commit murder at midnight in every time zone. So not ev- evil can evil. Not evil can evil, just evil. Uh, and what's interesting about this movie is we spend way more of the film with the killer than we do with the main character. We watch as the killer kind of goes around, stalks his victims, picks them out comes up with these different ploys and then murders them. And one of my favorite parts about it is that on a couple of instances, he fucks it up. <laughs> like, he proves that it's not easy to be a killer in a slasher film. One movie, he, like, picks, he goes and he he puts on this fake mustache and this expensive watch and he comes up with this whole, like, yeah, I work, uh, I'm an agent for movie stars. And he goes to pick up this girl in a bar and she insists on bringing her friend with her. So now it's like, oh shit, now I gotta figure out how to kill both of them. And the friend's like, let's go to the liquor store. And he's like, fine, we'll stop the liquor It's It's like this whole ordeal that he goes through to try and knock off these victims at the right time. And then there's this great scene where he runs afoul of a motorcycle gang and ends up running from a motorcycle gang who's trying to kill him and hiding in this. So it's like this big comedy of errors. That's great. But it's almost like... The movie tries to maintain a serious tone, like a serious horror tone throughout, even though we're watching all of this nonsense happen. And I think that's what makes it so charming. And the other thing that makes it fucking hilarious unintentionally is the extras that they hired to be the like the the mosh pit of this concert. Right. Because there's like there's new wave weirdos, there's hardcore <laughs> punks, there's a dude with like plastic wrap up and down his arm and a trucker hat. There's just like there is no there's no continuity whatsoever to these people, and they're listening to these really terrible bands, and it's like, what the fuck is going Are on? Are real bands? Uh, I think one of them is a real band, and the other was a band put together for the movie. Okay. But it's just, it's one of those things that it is so unlike any other slasher film you've ever seen, and part of that is by design, and part of that is just because it's so goddamn weird. And they had to finish filming by midnight. And they had to finish filming by midnight, so... <laughs> because, you know. Because, you know. Uh, but so this this Blu-ray that they put out, which looks great... Uh, has, does have a, a fair amount of special features, an audio commentary with Emmett Olsen, new interviews with actor Kip Niven, who plays the killer, uh, uh, Grant Kramer, who plays the, the main lady's son, lots of the director of photography, and then there's a theatrical trailer. Um, this is one of my favorite weird, forgotten horror films. In fact, every year, my New Year's party that I throw is called New Year's Evil in honor of this film. So definitely, if you haven't seen it, this is the best time to pick it up. This Blu-ray is great. I am so, so happy that Scream Factory put it out. A, m- a horror movie I'm not so excited about that I don't think Johnny Neal got a chance to see and is all the better for it uh, is a movie called Zombie World. Now, when you hear that title, you're probably thinking, oh, kind of like Zombieland. No, no, not just kind of like Zombieland. 
so horribly plagiarize, so horribly plagiarizes Zombieland that I would not be surprised if we find out that this movie gets slapped with a giant fucking injunction any day now. This is just blatant, horrible, like... This is one of the worst things I've ever watched. Well, th- and you can just tell by looking at the box yeah. that if there were still blockbusters, you know, that that you would see that and think, oh, it's a sequel or it's... You it, know, they're it's trying to trick that, you into... That yeah. whole thing, that yeah, whole yeah. marketing ploy packaging. The thing that really pisses me off is that this is produced by Dread Central, which is one of the, the premier horror sites on the internet. And I'm sorry, first of all, the idea of... Websites that review horror movies, also producing horror movies, is the biggest conflict of interest to That's me. An antitrust. Suit. I think it's super shady. I, I really I don't like it. They're not the Dread Central's not the only one. Bloody Disgusting does it too. And I've actually seen instances where Bloody Disgusting has posted like suspiciously overly negative reviews. Of films that are opening up against films that they have produced. Oh, that's, I've seen it happen. That's lame. And it's super lame. Now, Dread Central, on the other hand, has decided to ruin their credibility a completely different way by putting their name on this utter garbage. Is it that bad? It is. I Okay, so the basic premise here is that this is an anthology film about living in the world after the zombie apocalypse. And it's held together by this one horribly unfunny wraparound story about a uh, a newscaster who's like, oh no, they're trying to get in, uh, fighting them off. Oh, and here's what's going on in Australia. And then you'll get vignettes that are either desperately unfunny, as they're trying to be funny, or they're these dramatic pieces that are so hackneyed, so cliche, so poorly produced. I mean, the effects in this would make George Romero vomit up his own guts, and Lucio Fulci would be there crapping out his insides as well like this is just it's just it's so offensively cheap that it's like i don't understand why anyone thought this should be in a movie and then on top of that there there are jokes like for example in the in the newscaster joke the ticker has like five different kim kardashian jokes and i'm like two things one write more than one joke Two, you immediately date yourself yeah. by putting someone who's a pop culture footnote as the central comedic figure of your horrible movie. And it's just, it's it's unbearable to sit through. It is such a fucking chore. And not only that, but there are points in the movie where, like I said, you want to talk about plagiarism? There are points in the movie where it's like, how to survive the zombie apocalypse. And one of the things they say, literally, I'm not making this up, I'm not exaggerating, is enjoy the little things. Uh, and I'm like, that's the final thing in Zombieland. <laughs> you just blatantly fucking ripped off. Like, this thing doesn't even qualify to me as a movie. This is wow. this is like if you could, you know, you string popcorn together and you put it on your Christmas tree. Instead of popcorn, just like pieces of medical waste that have oh. been strung together and thrown up on a Christmas tree. Like, that's what this is. This isn't even a fucking movie. This is just garbage piled on top of garbage. And I don't see this. It, don't buy it. Don't rent it. I'm not going to say pirate it because I'm not that petty, but this is this is fucking Drek. This should have been produced by Drek Central. Was anybody in it? No, I didn't there's there's nobody in it even they half at least worth dress talking. like Woody Harrelson or anything like no. that. No, I mean, do they go that far? No, there's. The... I mean, I mean, all of the things they do to rip off Zombieland are completely within the structure. Well, it sounds like you know one of like a porn parody without the sex. You yeah, know, only, that might have made some it better. Porn parodies are actually pretty funny. That might have made it better yeah. if it ended up being a porn parody. Uh, well, let me run through. There's a couple more here we got to talk about. I'm going to run through these real quick. Uh, the Humbling is a film that uh, proves yet again that Al Pacino really just desperately needs the right director. And and Barry Levinson, who is a well-known filmmaker, 
is just not the guy, apparently, to elicit the, the full-on um, Pacino effect anymore. I think he's just... I think he really has lost it. And, and it's sad for me to say, because Pacino's such a legendary actor, but... Well, and it's weird because he's got another movie that looks exactly like that. Yeah. That's coming out. Yeah, the... Uh, where he's a pop singer, and it's like a... Elton John well, musical. He makes or like something. four movies a year now. Um, well, he makes one movie four times a year. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I think that there. I hate to say it, but I just think maybe he's not as good as we have given him credit for. Do you think? Because I mean, when he's really good, he's great. But when he's not, it's just a chore. I yeah. just can't stand it. Uh, I, and and I think that we get in, in awe of the stuff that he did that was great and then give him way too much credit for it. Well, and Barry Levinson is a guy, like, the best thing Barry Levinson has done since 2001 is uh, a documentary for ESPN about the uh, the marching band for the Baltimore Colts. Like, literally, wow. that's the best. I mean, I kind of like the Bay, uh, you know, in all in all honesty. But, yeah, the humbling is, the humbling Ricky starts off. Diner? What? Uh yeah, I think Levinson did Diner. Yeah, back in Ten Men and Diner. that was his first feature film was Diner. No way. Yep. So it, I mean, he also a... did The Natural. He did Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man. Oh, wow. I mean, this is a guy who knows how to make movies. Yeah. But I mean, then you, you then you keep going and you I mean like Sleepers, Wag the Dog, but then after that you get like Envy and Man of the Year and you know it's like I I don't know I just think this is this is a crossing of two people at a very inopportune point in both of their careers well two people who seem to have had uh little um not an entourage what's the word i'm looking for here uh their their own little production group around them yeah you know that got big on being with the right people sure and they weren't either of the other person you know they (laughs) i got you (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. like i mean to me i I was never a robin williams fan but he sure as hell was great in 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 good morning vietnam yeah you know and then you look at the crowd from diner and everybody from that went on to do but 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 the, the levinson thing just to kind of paint a clear picture he did two more movies with robin williams neither of which is really worth talking about one is toys right yeah and the other is man of the year so you know, I don't even remember that. There one. you go. That's exactly the right. Toys I never actually saw. Toys is a bizarre movie. Yeah. Just right. absolutely. Anyway, the humbling. Sorry. The humbling. The humbling is about an actor uh, who is getting uh, who's getting up there in age, and he's having trouble remembering lines and finding happiness, and he, he thinks he might have Alzheimer's. He's getting a little bit. It's just he's, he feels like he's slowly losing his mind. And the beginning of the film actually had a lot of promise because it felt a lot like Birdman, because it was kind oh, of following wow. this guy who was having this kind of. Uh, existential crisis, and he's an actor, and he's doing a stage play, and and this is all at the beginning of the movie. In the middle of delivering lines, he jumps off the stage into the orchestral pit, trying to kill himself. In the middle of the play, wow. so he's remanded to a, a psychiatric facility, and you know, yeah, it's only like eight feet. Yeah, I know, but he's very old and very frail. It could have done is the he job. Aiming for like a, the the symbol. I think he was aiming for maybe the the thing he went out on. Um, so while he's there, he meets a lot of really bizarre characters, one of whom is a woman who wants him to murder her husband, but he's like, no, I don't, I don't do that. That's, that's not, you, you need to talk to somebody else. You need the New Year's evil guy. Yeah, right? And then throughout the whole movie, she keeps showing up in his life like, okay, here's the money. Okay. Is that Greta Gerwig? No, no, no. Greta oh. Gerwig, uh, plays a woman named, uh, Pajine? It's just a really bizarre name. I don't know. Uh, but she is the daughter 
of a woman that Al Pacino used to know, used to work with, might have had a thing a thing with. Is she really his daughter? Uh, no, thank God, oh, because okay. they have sex in this movie, oh. so that would have been weird. Oh, that's weird enough. So it becomes this whole May-December romance type of thing, and the complications of that, and... Do you buy it? I... I buy why she's attracted to him at the beginning because it has to do with the fact that he was always around and he was lar- he was very famous, larger than life. So that those so feelings- she grew up knowing. Him. Yes, anyway, she grew okay. up knowing him. And the woman that's her mother is played by Diane Weist, who I always love. Yeah, uh, it's great to see her in things. But so the movie starts off with a lot of promise with this whole idea of like the existential crisis, and he really wants to keep being an actor, and he has a lot of interesting philosophies on acting. And then the relationship with Greta Gerwig becomes the central focus of the movie. And I just didn't find that compelling after about 30 minutes. About 30 minutes into that relationship, it just became a series of really unnecessary complications. And, you know, he's jealous of this and she knows, she knows this person. She used, you know, she was a lesbian. Now she's sleeping with him. He has like, he feels weird about that. And then they keep running into former lovers of hers, both male and female. And he can't deal with that. And I'm just like, Remember when this was about acting and right. this was about your existential crisis? It was a lot more interesting. So did it feel like it became a? Was it like the captive? Did it turn into like yeah, two it, or three movies? It, it became a different movie that I felt couldn't stand on its own, and it just it just kind of fizzled out. And it was really disappointing because I really wanted to see more about um, about this character who was an actor and and what it meant for him to lose the one thing that really defined him. And I just thought that was going to be the focus of the movie. And that would be a good. Movie, yeah, and that would be something. The movie's called The Humbling, like that would actually feel very humbling, right? You know, sleeping with a girl who's like a third your age and is way out of your league when you're that old, it doesn't seem very humbling to me. Well, (laughs) to me, where I was hoping you were gonna go with that was she fucks him and gets it out of their system, and then it's like, okay, well, I'm glad I got that out of the way. You would think, but no, there's this whole like very uncomfortable relationship that continues between them, and it just doesn't work, and you know, everybody, you know, like, like I said, there's got a great cast here and they're very quick to point out that like Pacino's an award Academy Award winner. Diane Weiss is an Academy Award winner. Greta Gerwig's, you know, nominated for Golden Globe. And there's a lot of strong performance here and there's a lot of potential, but it just gets squandered in this movie about a relationship that frankly just isn't that fascinating. Yeah, I don't think how it could be. It would only be gross. Speaking of things that aren't at all fascinating, why don't we talk about Dragonheart 3? Bumpera, Dragonheart 3, because you didn't get enough. Because you didn't know they made a Dragonheart 2. <laughs> you didn't get enough of that sweet stuff. I did Dragonheart 2, 1, and 2. I didn't. Did you see the first Dragonheart, John? I, I did see the first one a long time ago. Yeah, so... That was the Dennis Quaid. Yeah. At Sean Connery as a dragon. I am the last one. I am the last... Well, that was good. Thank you. you. Do that, yeah. Gosh, well, I am a dragon now, and... Uh, push it galore. Gosh, push it galore. <laughs> I can't have sex with women because I'm a dragon. I'm a dragon. What's your favorite peanut butter? <laughs> pushy peanut butter. Pushy butter. <laughs> so tra- yeah, that's right. We've been doing this for 27 hours. We have. We have. Uh, so dra- Dragonheart 3 is a movie um, that's... So they, despite all of this, despite the fact that it's direct-to-video nonsense, despite the fact that it's an unnecessary sequel, they still got Sir Ben Kingsley to come and voice the dragon oh. in the movie. So it was he like... He didn't come and voice the dragon. No. He phoned that in. He literally, like, over the phone was like, <laughs> what are my lines? I'll just say them now. And I love there's a sticker on this box that says, all new movie! It's like... <laughs> Uh, okay, that All right. seems apparent by the fact that it's a not, movie. Not a speck of cereal. <laughs> <laughs> 
not for use in tacking down your carpet. Like, okay, thanks. Uh, it's a movie, apparently. Um, I don't even want to go into the whole story here. It's a, it's about basically the time when the Roman Empire had built this giant wall in Britannia, and the wall is still there, and there's these warring factions that that want to destroy the wall, others want to keep it up, and blah 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 blah. Uh, and then there's dragons. And you don't. Now, the story is so it? fucking inconsequential. How many dragons are there? There's just the one dragon, and then there's the young, the young kind of uh, the hero. What's uh, what's that? You know, that classic hero structure. The, um, uh, the protagonist, the antagonist, the something something hero. I can't remember. It's like very hero. very heart of darkness. You know, Joseph Conrad type of hero. Oh, uh, uh, monomyth. The monomyth. So it's oh, it's it's very monomyth. Like it's just the the young guy who doesn't he isn't aware of all the magic in the world and he starts to discover it and he saves the dragon's egg. So the dragon is uh, kind of indebted to him and help decides to help him um, take over those who are enslaving lands. Blah blah blah. Do you, do you think this is a movie that would not exist without Game of Thrones? I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> this movie specifically, Dragonheart Three, is entirely capitalizing on Game of Thrones. Right. The whole thing with the wall, it's like that becomes a central plot point because like, oh, before the wall and before we get to the wall, I'm like, okay, maybe that's just maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe. And then I didn't see two. Don't know. If- don't know. Maybe. <laughs> but then there's this whole thing about there's this tribe of wild people. Ah. And one of them the is a beautiful redheaded Scottish girl Arr. who's in love with our hero. Is and she I'm an like. Archer? What, what's that? Is she an archer as well? Right, exactly. I'm like, why don't you just call the kid Jon Snow? If you're going to rip off elements from Game of Thrones that blatantly, just go whole hog and call the kid Jon Snow. Because, yeah, so there's... Dragonheart 3 should be called Dragonheart 3 Game of Dragons. Game be- of Dragons. Because that's all this is. is it's, it's a very poorly constructed sequel that is capitalizing on Game of Thrones. And they make the horrendous decision. The dragon doesn't look that bad. Okay. As far as when it's normally flying around the CG. It doesn't look that bad. But then they come up with this weird story element where it can't be out in the sunlight. Apparently it's a dragon pyre. And I don't know. Blackula dragon. I know, right? And I'm like... <laughs> That's weird. So when he is out in the sunlight, he's like in this ghost form, and he looks like this weird, transparent dragon embryo. Like, it's just, it's really fucking bizarre looking. And I'm like, you know, you didn't have to write in that element. Like, we would have been just fine without that. that. that that's, why do you have to come up with a new, you know, Okay, look, mythology. right here on the back, Johnny. Now, look at that girl right there. That girl right there is totally uh, totally the wildling girl from Game of Thrones. Well, she has Mike Tyson's tattoo, she- so we got a Mike Tyson mystery <laughs> thing going on. We got, the, we got Brave, we got Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh. I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying she is totally... She's pretty cute. No, she's very cute, but uh, she's clearly supposed to be... In a Hillary Swank kind of... Um, Egret, I believe, is the name of the Egret. girl in Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's that's who she's entirely supposed to be. Like right down to the fact that they cast an actress from the same country, so the accent would line up. Yeah, like it's it's just it's crazy, and the action sequences are like very middle of the road. The magic stuff is like who cares? I mean, it's if you're a fan of the first two movies and you're a completionist, or if you have, or, or if you even knew that there was a second movie, or if you have young kids that you're like maybe you're warming up to Game of Thrones, like maybe they're almost at the right age. Yeah, sure. Is it? Is it- you know, uh, family friendly. It's yeah, it's pretty family friendly. Because I mean, you know, Game of Thrones. If, if it's not it, Game of Thrones. That's a long is not con. If you're trying to warm your kids up to Game of Thrones, you know, like <laughs> yeah, Dragon Dragonheart is definitely PG thirteen. Uh, it's going to be fine for the whole family. It's just it's a very 
it's a very middling film, I guess. Uh, it's a, maybe it'll be the middle of the franchise. Maybe they'll make three more of these. Maybe, maybe they'll get Dennis Quaid to come back. Maybe Randy Quaid. Maybe. And we're going to end this week with... Uh, oh, my God. Okay, so again, I know we have a lot of shit we had to talk about, but Innocence is uh, the last thing we're going to talk about this week. Now, this is a film... I have no idea where the hell this came from. Uh, Cynodyne released it. I don't know if it was ever in theaters or on TV or what. Um, but basically it takes place at a, at a boarding school and, you know, the new girl there is convinced, uh, I mean, right after she gets there, uh, a girl commits suicide by jumping off the roof, like right in front of her. There's obviously weird stuff going on. She doesn't quite trust the faculty, blah, blah, blah. Wouldn't you know it? Something supernatural is actually going on. Everything about this movie is shallow. Everything about this movie is shallow and it's problematic because, there are moments wherein it's clearly trying to paint certain characters as shallow, but there's no juxtaposition. Like, there's no character who's not. So when you try to cast the spotlight on, aren't these people shallow? I'm like, yeah, just like everyone else <laughs> in your movie well, and your story alike. and your plot is shallow and your like every like your your idea of artistic expression is shallow. Like for example, um, it makes it labors under the delusion that tinting the scenes in oppressive blue and gray tones yeah. is the same as actually being a dark movie. Yeah. It's like, no, that's just dark colored. Yeah. That's there's a not... lot of weird stuff like that with digital. And yeah, that exactly. It's so like overly digitally, like super toned that yeah. I'm just like, that's not the same as being a dark movie just because everything's gray. Yeah. Like, not the same. Suck the life out of it. I mean, but this, this is about I like that actress, Kelly Riley. Is that the star? I don't know her name, but she was, uh, she was Watson's, Wife in uh, the Sherlock, in the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's really too bad. Yeah, I like her a lot. She that is a, that is really really a shame because nobody in this movie is particularly nobody good. Nobody gets away with it. No, nobody at all. <laughs> uh, although Kelly Riley does have does give the movie a bit of a boost because she kind of looks like Jessica Chastain. Yeah. So throughout the movie, it's like, is that Jessica? Oh, it's not. Yeah. Hey, maybe that's Jessica. It's not. She's at that all. vaguely European, and then you go, oh, she's not. And she was in that movie with. Uh, Ah, whatever. She was in that movie with that thing with that guy. So that seems to be a new uh, trend of boarding school girls that are kind of supernatural. Well, no, no. Here's the thing. The movie, first of all, in the first two minutes, there's a tragedy. In the first yeah. two minutes, they like they go surfing and the mom dies. She just disappears. Wow. It's like, okay, great. If she wasn't good at surfing, why'd you go surfing? Um, <laughs> Did you get her arm eaten off? <laughs> It's not is even this, that is cool. This a Christian inspiration. Apparently, movie? apparently she had an aneurysm and drowned. Like oh, that. I'm like, fuck. Wow. Why'd you have to have it then? Um, but so the basic premise here, and it's going to get real weird because this movie is about as dark as reading Twilight while watching an after school special. Because what we come to find out is that they're the the women of this. Board, I'm going to spoil this. I don't fucking care. Um, the women of this boarding school are are keeping themselves young by drinking the blood of virgins. But what's weird about that is they get really super intensely involved in the sex life of this girl because it's like they have to keep her a virgin so that they can drink her blood and stay young. So every time she's even like making out with a guy, like somebody will show up and be like, you need to go home. And it's just like, this is the weirdest chastity belt of a movie I have ever seen. Where do the guys come from if they're in an all-girl boarding school? I don't. Hamilton Prep. Hamilton Prep. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just... It's just, it's a fucking weird, like, it, it can't decide if it wants to be, like, pro-women discovering their sexuality and that the evil is, you know, the people who are trying to stop that, or if it's really about how, like, you shouldn't be having, I don't know, it, it's like it can't even figure out its own morality, and it's just, it's such a waste of time, I mean. Is it lesbian-y? 
not not no. It's not even like you know because it's a PG thirteen movie, so it can't even go full genre in and have like the lesbian PG thirteen. Yeah, exactly. This is just it's it's a total waste of time, what dude. What's that all about? Yeah, all of this stuff going on, and it's it's PG thirteen, and it's just it's so lame on every level. It tries to convince you that it's quality. It's not. It tries to convince you it's dark. It's really not. It's and it's, n- it's not even committed to any kind of morality. No, even though the movie's called Innocence. I mean, because sometimes you can go, uh, it's not my cup of tea, but at least they're they're committed. To but if you think about it, like, being innocent in this movie is what's going to get this girl's blood drained from her. So I would kind of think How it'd be... How much do they get? I would kind of think it'd be better not to be innocent so that you're not, you know, the the vessel by which evil succubi are staying alive, you know? Yeah. I'm just saying. I mean, well, did Have get... sex, kids. That's what I'm trying Have to tell sex. you. As soon as possible. Don't do, be like Foxcatcher. Do not let yourself be John <laughs> DuPont. Do not let yourself be the, the buffet, the smorgasbord for some weird coven of Elizabeth Bathory's. You have sex immediately. That's what we've been trying to tell you since day one. That's right. And you know what will help you get laid is being able to play a musical instrument like Miles Teller and Whiplash, which, by the way, incidentally happens to be our giveaway this week. Ooh. Yes. we're that, gi- That's a hi-hat. Right? That's a solo. Not my tempo. Not my tempo. <laughs> so we are giving away a DVD copy of Whiplash, which, again, is one of the best movies this year. I'm really excited. This is a movie that's going to last forever. It totally you know will. I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, some sometimes a movie, like, in 10 years, even if it won an Oscar or whatever, in 10 years are going, what the hell were we thinking? Yeah. Whiplash is going to be one of the great, how far do you go with teacher worship? How far do you go as a teacher? I mean, if the guy, I just, I can't sell this movie highly enough. I mean, I, we just talked till we were blue, like fucking Smurfs here talking about it. and Talk till we, we were blues. Fucking blue Smurf peanut butter is fucking great <laughs> shit, too, by the way. But uh, we, I, I just, you know, it's one of those movies that you say, you, you just mention it, and it's like a dog whistle, you know, when the yeah. dog sits up. Are you ever see your dog just freak out and and you're going, is our house haunted? What? Why are you barking all of a sudden? Somebody's blowing a dog whistle. Somebody's exactly. watching Whiplash. Somebody's watching Whiplash. And you can watch Whiplash too if you win this contest. And here's how you do it: follow us on Twitter at one of us net, and then we're gonna have you tweeted us with the answer to this hypothetical. I want you to imagine that you can pick any fictional character to be your J.K. Simmons type drill sergeant. I want you to tell you. I want you to tell us who that character is and what he is training you to be the best at. And you're going to send that answer, once again, at one of us, Nat. Make sure you're following us. And then hashtag that Whiplash giveaway. We'll pick our favorite, and that person will win a DVD copy of Whiplash. And Johnny Neal, that brings us to the end of our very first episode of Digital Noise Together. Can I, can I just add a little something Please to Please do. If your answer is, I want to be a new prisoner, and I want him to teach me the ways of the Aryan Brotherhood... <laughs> Um, it's been done. It's too easy. That's all That's I want to say. Easy. It's been done. Pick a different fictional character yeah. than uh, J.K. Simmons' character in Whiplash. I hope that I hope that went without saying, but I'm going to say it again, <laughs> just because I don't want anybody to send that and in. That was actually my way of saying, 
if you're into J.K. Simmons, you really need to watch Oz. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> start, and if you, start at the beginning. Absolutely. And if you're into this show, you can catch us on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow the show on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. And you can uh, follow the website on Twitter at OneOfUsNet. You can like us on Facebook, Facebook.com slash OneOfUsNet. And please do consider becoming a subscriber to the website. Johnny Neal, thank you so much. This thank is, you for having me. I had a blast. This is going to be fun. I think I think we're going to have some good times every third week or so. And if you don't like so. me, write to us and tell 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 me what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> I want you to love me. I want you to approve. I want your love. I need it. I need it so I don't have anything else. You are you are the Mark Schultz and the internet is the John Dupont. That's what's <laughs> happening here. Well, it's, Yes. Until next week, guys, I will end the show the way I always do, reminding you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, and Lord knows we had both on this show, we review them all. And, I, and the Criterion was the Catastrophe. That's Holy the shit. sad part. The worst of them all was a Criterion release. Inception. <laughs> <laughs>